brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello and welcome back to another roundtable on the Grapple Podcast Network. Never sounds right saying that. Uh, and this month we're doing a special G1 roundtable. Uh, to summarise that, also hopefully a little bit of chat at the end about some of the other tournaments that have been going on. And we have some brilliant guests tonight. First of all, we have our returning champion from many a roundtable. She's very much... The person who's in the know should have been sat near that kid who was with his pig in the front row at the block finals. That should have been you, Sarah. We have Sarah Flannery from the Two Sarahs podcast. How are you? Uh, not too bad, JP. Thanks for having me back. And I agree. I think I should have had my Daryl on the seat there instead of my three Daryls, actually. Three Daryls instead of one pig in the front row. I would have been like a pig in a muck now in that front row watching that show. Um, but yeah, glad to be here. <laughs> He, he is the hero we need in these COVID times, isn't he, that kid? Um, we also have this month Sarah's co-host from the Two Sarahs podcast. Um, fantastic to have her on, Sarah Keneally. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, JP. Hello to the listeners of the Grapple app podcast. Is you, that right? You can say Don't whatever. We wing the title Spotlight, so really you can say whatever at this stage. We'll just release it and see how it goes from there. But unbelievably, very much the evil to the Io Shirai that Sarah is, we have the King of Pure himself, Alan Farrell. Alan, how are you, sir? I'm good. I'm not sure about this evil comparison. You're, you're right. setting things off on a <laughs> bad note with us here, JP. Uh I'm going to try and think of a, uh, a better, uh, no good, uh, no good wrestling husband wife combinations are coming to my head that make me look any better than evil uh, right now. Ken, so Kensuke Sas- uh, Sasaki. You know, I'll take that. There is about twenty-five little Kensuke figurines around this house. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I'll t- I'll take that. Sarah, I know you're not familiar with Akira Hokuto, but you'll you'll take that too. Trust me. Okay. <laughs> you have a figure of her too, don't you? I do. I have one where they're stood together beside each other. It's great. Big, big stars they were as well, like you two, amongst amongst wrestling fans around the world. And our last guest, he's not nearly as good, but you'll be very, very familiar with his voice. Um, someone I wanted to have on one of these roundtables for quite some time, Richard Benson himself, <laughs> a.k.a. Benno. How are you? <laughs> Mike, Mike? I'm very well, John Paul. John Paul. The host, you don't get to do hosting duties this time around. You just left it down to me. That's it, mate. I'm cracking a beer for this one. I'm chilling out. So, yeah. Where, where do we fit in, like, wrestling power couples? I feel like we're basically one at this point. I, I speak to you more than I speak to my own mum at this point. Yeah, at times it rivals my own kids. 
like it, which is which is very very wor- worrying. Uh, what power? One of which we? was sixteen today, which shocked me. Yes, sixteen years old. I feel like a bad dad saying, "All right, sixteen years old, but let's get this G one round table out of the way." Since Sarah Flan is with us here, Sarah can give approval or not on this. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to throw it out there without her approval. Would they be perhaps the uh, the Greg and Dustin of of podcasting, or is that? Or should I not throw that around too loosely? Um. Well, will one of your mothers drop you off for recording in her minivan? <laughs> <laughs> that will determine who's the Dustin and the Greg. I think Benno's mum would. I think definitely Steph's mum. Steph's mum definitely would be up for that. And she'd be talking G1 with you in the car on the drive over as well. She sounds absolutely mm-hmm. spot on. Um, one can be the OC then, and that's you three. There we go. That's. I'll happily take that. I'll happily Grapple, take that. Grapple Garrett is the swamp monster, or Drew Gulak. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Drew Gulak has the PowerPoint, and Grapple Gareth has the the Excel spreadsheets. Yeah. There you go, perfect. He's Gulak. <laughs> That's spot oh, on. Yes. Analogy wise, we are down. Um, this month we're doing a bit of a final wrap up from the G1, uh, talking about sort of various things, including sort of what we thought of the shows overall, ratings, um, but also then. Later on, wanting to talk about sort of almost like the state of Japanese business at this at this point in time. So, going to start off with yourself, Sarah. Overall third, Sarah. What a way to start. We've got two Sarahs in the room. Going to say which one? Sarah <laughs> Flan. How about that? Sarah Flan, Sarah Farrell. Sarah Farrell. That's how we're going to go. Sarah Flan. What did you make overall thoughts on the G one? It felt for the first time in quite a while and I don't know if it was because of the time of year I was busy with work there was a lot of tournaments in a short space of time I kind of felt like it was a bit of a slog I don't know I don't know what it was usually the G1 for me it's lovely summertime everyone's a bit more relaxed the days are a bit longer you know it's 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 a nice relaxing watch I'd get up at 6am to watch it or I'd watch it after work but this time I don't know what it was it felt like a slog and I don't know if it was because of the crowds and you're just not as engaged there was just nothing really making me want to get up early and watch it the next day and that was the first time I've ever really felt like that about New Japan okay how about you Sarah Farrell how did you feel about it because you didn't see as much of the tournament as perhaps some of us is that right yeah, I didn't really watch it, and that wasn't me taking any type of a political stand. That I just couldn't be arsed with it. Um, I kind of said that I felt like it was like a movie you'd seen, you really liked, but you'd seen it like ten times before. I had no interest in watching it at all. I think I watched one or two of Yano's matches and maybe an Ishii match here and there. It was on the whole time. Like, don't get me wrong, Alan had it on the TV. So when I'd walk around my house, there would be G1 on, but nothing really hooked me in to sit down and watch it. I was actually I wanted to watch um, the N1 and the Champion Carnival we'll see what they were about, kind of going into those fresh, but we can talk about those later. So G1 for me was just a write-off, and it wasn't anything to do with Will Ospreay or anybody like that. I just I just was not arsed this year. Just wasn't just, just weren't feeling it, basically? No, just were not, was not feeling it. How about you, Alan? You live in the same house. So, like, normally I imagine last year, two years before that, it would have been like a kind of great thing to do throughout the summer, sort of sit down and be able to kind of power through the g1 i mean how did you find this year's version well i to be fair went into it with 
cautious expectations. Um, I, as people who've been listening to my podcast, trade the months kind of since COVID kicked in. Um, I, um, I don't want to say down on current wrestling. It's just I kind of have current wrestling on a bit of a pause in terms of my attachment and interest to it. I'm still keeping up with stuff, um, but I'm just not as invested as I would have been in a normal year because I know there's such limitations there. There's the kind of thing in the back of your mind of how much is this year just kind of a placeholder year. Like that's right across the board with all companies and just things don't feel right. And there's uh, I've been waiting years to be able to really dedicate enough time as I wanted to go back and watch kind of all the old stuff I want to watch and all the, the millions of rewatch projects I have and dig into. And I've been able to do a lot of that this year and that's got my juices flowing a lot more. So I had tempered expectations for the G1. I wrote an article for the Torch newsletter about three weeks out from the G1 where I kind of basically was telling people, this was before they announced the the guys they were going to have over from the US and the UK and everything. And I was basically saying people should really temper their expectations. This won't be like a G1 that we've seen in recent years. So with those low expectations, to be honest, it didn't disappoint for me. Like maybe I get the impression it did for uh, Sarah Flam when, when she was talking about it. So I, I think it kind of ended up pretty much how I visualized a G1 during this COVID era was going to be, particularly once they announced the lineup. It was probably, from what I thought before they announced the lineup, it actually probably ended up better than I expected because I didn't think they would be getting in guys like Jay White and Will Ospreay and um, uh, Kenta. And honestly, Jay White was probably one of the the guys that really, just in terms of promos and character work and everything, he was one of the guys that really kept things ticking over for me tread the tournament and kept engaged so i think not having jay and not having those other fly-in guys would have made for a, a worse experience so that was a big help so i think overall like if this was a g1 if you just dropped me into this year and i didn't know about covid or anything like that and you just sat me down and had me watch the whole g1 i'd be like why was this g1 so bad this was so terrible compared to recent years but with the expectations i had I actually didn't, I wasn't too disappointed at all. I thought it, it did a lot of good things and they basically hit the ceiling for what I think they could have got out of a G1 with a couple of things here or there that could have been improved. But I mean, that's the case every year, really. Mm. How about you, Benner? We covered all of these on a, on our, on Spotlight. We, we went through the whole thing. Um, you've had a bit of time now to kind of think about it and decompress on it. Has it stuck with you at all? Yeah, I think that's why we do these wrap-up shows, isn't it? Because I think because we're in it and we're watching it, you know, and having to review it week to week. And there's shows, isn't there, where like me and you are just about, and we'll talk about the B-Block later, but just about struggling to fit a B-Block show in before, literally seconds before we press record. And even when it comes, you know, right up to the final, we record it on final day. So yeah, I always think these podcasts are a good idea to kind of decompress and look at them with a bit of distance. And yeah, I'm kind of like, I think for me, I'm glad it happened. I look back at it and I think there's people who I've seen outright say, you know, it's one of the worst uh, G1s they've seen or the worst uh, modern G1. And to be honest, I think for most of it, I was just happy it was taking place. Like with this shit of the year we've all been living through, it was nice. Hell of an achievement. 
that they were yeah. able to pull it off to the degree that they did. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a hell of a, a great stroke of luck that they got that they didn't run into any issues. And I know kind of cases were going down in Japan at this point. They were back on track, so there probably wasn't as much risk as if it happened in August when Japan was kind of spiking again. But still, they, they needed luck on their side. And yeah, just I think it was a, they were able to keep the same schedule that they had originally announced at the start of the year like they didn't have to change any shows venues nothing like that which is remarkable yeah it's it's crazy and like you said before like the fact that they were able to get the fly-ins and pull that off as well um because i think we were all dreading a tournament that would maybe look a little bit like the new japan cup earlier in the year and it was looking all a little bit uninspired and so yeah i don't know whether for me it was a case of just wanting it to be good and really really loving that a block because of that um completely recognized that yet yeah, maybe it wasn't up to the uh, the standard of of previous years we can get into the different reasons why um but yeah you know in this in this rough period where there isn't much else going on in the world it was nice to have a reason to you know get up early on a saturday or a sunday morning or rush home from work and and watch an a block show and at some point watch a b block show um so yeah it was a uh, again even if it wasn't exactly to the level of what we'd normally expect um, I think it was it was good enough and uh, and worthwhile of uh, us spending all that time on it, JP. Well, let's get into it. In that case, I mean, going into the specifics of sort of the G one. If we look first of all, we'll try and start off on possibly be the most positive note. What was your best match in the entire G one? I'm going to start off with you, Alan. What was the one match? If you're picking one that was kind of like that was the one you you thought was the absolute banger of the tournament. Oh, hands down, easy answer, no doubt about it. It was Shingo versus Okada. Like that was, that was probably the only current match I've seen since that AEW show at the end of February. That was the only current match that I've legitimately been sucked into, and that I've been marking out and jumping off the couch and pumping the fist and shouting Shingo at my TV and begging for guys to kick out or to not submit or um oh, like little things like when Shingo grabbed uh the referee back by the by the tail of his shirt when the referee was going to try and, and ring the bell, I was freaking out. Like I I for twenty five minutes or whatever it was, I forgot there was COVID. I forgot that this was a clap crowd. I forgot every limitation that there was on this G one and I was fully sucked into watching my favorite wrestler of all time, the best wrestler of all time, in my opinion, Shingo Takagi, going up against New Japan's benchmark of the last couple of years, and not only hang with him, but bring out um, what we've all been kind of looking for from Okada for a little while and give us that taste of of the Rainmaker. He's still obviously holding, holding stuff back, but a taste of the Rainmaker at his best. What a phenomenal match. I just, I can't gush over it enough. It was incredible. How about yourself, Sarah Flan? What did you go with? Well, I can't really top that. I would have to say that probably is my favourite match of the tournament for all the reasons Alan said. Um, but I want to give a bit of love because I feel like we're going to get very negative on B-Block today. I get the I get the vibe. We're not in a room, but I get the vibe on the call that B-Block wasn't so hot to other people. But um, night okay, two, I <laughs> maybe the the weekly shows. I I listened. I listened to what you guys have to say. Um, but I actually loved Tetsuya Naito against Hiroshi Tanahashi. Night yes. two, 
It started the tournament off on such a good note. Night one was great with A block, but there was just something about that match. It felt like classic G1, especially with Tanahashi. I think Tanahashi is one of the best wrestlers in the world for, you know, you just get into his story and it felt like nearly Tanahashi of old. He was like, I'm here to prove that I'm not this old feeble man that I've been made out to be this year with all my injuries. There was no tape on the arms. There was no tape on him. And it was just a classic Tanahashi match. And I think it kind of set the tone for him for the tournament that he isn't, you know, like that story's gone. He's not going to be this injured person throughout that we've seen in recent years. And I think Naito more than stepped up to the plate as well. I think Naito is guilty of taking nights off during tournaments or kind of phoning in performances. But when he's in the ring with, with Tanahashi, that's that's not the case. And I think it really proved it here. And I think it was just a brilliant way to kick off the tournament. And it really set the tone for me. Um and yeah, it was just a great match. Like that, like that felt. It kind of felt like a final on the first night of that block. You know, if that was a block final, it would have been brilliant as well. And I still would have rated it so highly. Yeah, couldn't disagree with that. It felt like one of those kind of big matches you get on those opening G one nights, don't you? How about you, Benno? What did you? What What was your best match of the tournament? Yeah, I think you know. Uh, we're going to get into, like Sarah just said, the uh, the B block late. I was a big fan of the B block. I don't know why you were complaining so much about it while we were recording JP every week. But <laughs> that 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 Tanahashi Naito match, genuinely, there's no you know surprise when we get into like the, the grapple ratings. So that's the the B block match that stands head and shoulders above all the other B block matches, and it's right up there with the A block matches because it felt like that match felt like okay, G one's you know. Like this is it's it's the Grade One climax. Let's go, um, and you kind of got that a little bit with uh, with Ishii Suzuki as well. But you know that pair of matches over that uh, that opening weekend were were when we really thought the tournament was coming. Um, you know, I share you know Alan's love of uh, Akada Shingo. Um, the Akada story was a you know one that not everyone was into throughout that tournament, um, but that was where I think that story peaked. And I honestly think that night thirteen, where that match took place, like it had the best one-two combo of the tournament because I think for me I actually just about preferred uh, Ibushi Suzuki from that match from that night because that was like that, that was the double main event of that night I look back at that now and it, at the time when we, when you're reviewing it you don't really see the forest for the trees sometimes and you look back and just like my god both of those matches took place on the same night and you know when we get into MVPs of the tournament Minoru Suzuki's going to come up a lot for me but that I was, was like, just going to say, we, we got to carve out some time on this to just throw some roses at Minoru Suzuki. Like, the guy that last year, many people thought, oh, he's not in the G1 because he can't handle it anymore. He's not he, he's not able for a G1 anymore. Jesus, did he ever throw that back in everyone's face? Oh, yeah. He's in two of my favorite three matches of the tournament because it's that one. And one that's maybe a personal favorite for me that I've not seen a huge amount of love for, uh, the Osprey match where he kind of slotted Osprey into his match. And, you know, it was a match completely purely uh, around limb selling, which, you know, is something Osprey gets criticized for a lot. But I feel like Suzuki and him had like this perfect chemistry in that match. And yeah, we, you know, when we get into the, the tournament, you know, we'll probably say for me, you know, those matches I've mentioned, none of those are, are five-star matches. Four and, a half, four and a half was pretty much the ceiling for me. Uh, as far as this tournament goes, but yeah, they were the matches that, that hit that watermark for me, and they were the ones where it really felt like G1 season when we were in it. I mean, yeah, like you guys have said, and funny enough, the matches you've picked, they are pretty much the the three top matches that the grapple users went with as well. I mean, their number one match of the tournament was Akada 
Okada Shingo, then Naito Tanahashi, then Ibushi Suzuki. But you yeah. mentioned MVPs. Ben, I'll go to you. I mean, mm. we talk about Minoru Suzuki as an MVP, but I mean, there's there's one person generally overall that we've kind of really gone into. Um, who was your MVP? And I want to think, is it, is it Tomohiro Ishii? I think it's got to be. Uh, I think there is, like Alan said, we should uh, spend some time talking about Minoru Suzuki because yeah, I think he's yeah. up like, I look at my top 10 matches of the tournament and I've got four Ishii matches in there, but I've also got three Suzuki matches in there. Uh, I've actually got three Ibushi matches in there. You had a quietly uh, great tournament. I say quietly won the thing, but, you know, it doesn't get talked about in the uh, in MVP uh, circles as much as he should. Uh, but it is hard to give anyone else credit when Tomohiro Ishii is in there. And that's borne out, isn't it, by those grapple stats that kind of just show, like, how we just expect it. It's just like, oh, yeah, it's G1 season. Ishii's going to kill it, and he's going to give us five match-of-the-year candidates to consider at the end of the year. Um, and that's what we got. Uh, you know, again, maybe not of the high level that you would normally get, but he was right up there, and he was integral to the tournament as well. Like, you think about what we all loved about that closing weekend. It was, you know, it was Ishii in there playing spoiler for Jay White. And, you know, he, Ishii's in there, and he's not even, you know, the headline story... You know, he's, get, he's finally getting his big main event on like a close in a block night and it's it's still not even about him but he's in there just you know he's Mr. Dependable if you need someone to go in there and be credible uh, and get that big upset win uh, he's always the guy for that as well so I feel like from a match point of view as normal he was the MVP of the tournament but I think he was integral to what turned out to be the overall story of the tournament as well so yeah it does feel like a, as usual another big issue here how about everybody else? I mean, um, how about yourself, Sarah Farrell? Did you was there anyone? Uh, do you think of what from what you saw of the tournament that you thought was the was an MVP? No, I honestly only watched like little bits of it. I like Master Watto. I thought he did the crack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was only on of the bloody final as well. <laughs> how about you, Sarah Flan? Yeah, I, I think yeah. We've covered them already, Suzuki and Ishii. I mean, Ishii especially, I think, for that moment, um, beating Jay White alone. Um, I think that's what the tournament really needed was that big surprise at the end. Because I think that's the thing with the G1. They can become very formulaic and you can predict what's going to happen with the with the match structures and the final nights. You can kind of get a sense of, of what's happening. And I think everyone going in was like, oh, they're going to do the, the Jay White evil final. They're, they've been teasing it the whole way through and I think for that moment alone with Ishii beating him and just like that's the catalyst that you need like whatever matches that have come before that's the moment that everyone's going to remember now and that's created something even more that we're going to be following for, for the rest of the year but 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 another MVP and this isn't even in terms of match quality mm. but um Kenta's uh, backstage storyline with, with, with the cameraman in his post-match <laughs> promos are definitely something that kept me engaged in the G1 in, in someone that wasn't really feeling the, the match quality this year as I would in previous years. I always logged in to Twitter or to YouTube the next day to see Kenta and his... It was like a love triangle with, with the backstage commentators. I don't know what like what's going on. I don't know what it is. I was very but, confused by it. I'll be honest, Sarah. <laughs> it, I'm still confused. I like this has been going on for so long, and I don't like I don't know what he's doing. But 
because I didn't know what he was doing, it just kept me engaged. And then I just got really, you know, a bee in my bonnet. I'm like, Kent is doing all this great stuff, making his own little stories backstage. Why isn't he getting more wins? Why isn't he up there? And then, of course, he did. He got his he got his few wins at the end of the tournament, beating Naito. But it was stuff like that that made the G1 a lot more palatable for me. I think this year, because you can kind of get set in your ways with the G1 and it gets formulaic, but the backstage stuff is actually what really helped me carry through. So, like Kenta and, and Jay White are kind of MVPs outside of the ring as well, I think. It's it's a point that I remember when we did the New Japan Fandom podcast together, Sarah, that you you had mentioned about actually when you start going into the backstage promos at that point, then there is this kind of different level of storytelling that if you're like normally like me and you're just sort of sticking strictly to the matches and what goes on on, on the kind of big cards, that we're missing that. We're missing the kind of subtle characterization, and that in and of itself can add to someone like I know for Kenta, he was the only one that I personally went back and watched some of those promos. Well, him and Jay White, they were like the reasons really to kind of watch a lot of oh, those the, promos. The, the Shingo ones, JP. Oh, oh my God. Those. What were they like? Oh, they're incredible. But I, I absolutely echo that. And another reason why that was a big deal for me this year was not having English commentary. I know they did English commentary, but I wasn't generally watching it with English commentary because of A, the delay, and B, I I just don't like watching commentary that I know is, and this is ironic as someone who's done this from time to time, I don't like watching commentary that I know isn't done in the arena live. Um, you just kind of get that canned audio. It's, it's very hard to... ROH are really the only ones that ever were able to do it in such a way that I didn't find it noticeable that, hey, they're not in the arena. Um, so like that, they, they might have done a good job with it. It might be fairly unnoticeable, but I didn't give it a chance. I'll be honest, I just stuck to the, the Japanese broadcast. And Kevin Kelly over the years and Chris Charlton and all the guys have done such a great job Um adding those character tidbits, explaining things in the story that if... You are someone like UJP who's not really investing a ton of time into the backstage promos. They're going to give you the, the key nuggets that you need to know um, in the commentary. So not having that this year, I definitely leaned on the backstage promos a bit more. And it just added that bit of flavor to what was happening in the ring. Because what was happening in the ring could be quite just... Uh, we'd see some pattern stuff and, and there was a lot of stuff that was quite similar. Um, and like... Things like uh, Tai Chi. So Tai Chi does this shtick where he acts like the whole thing is a sumo competition. And he talks about himself. He's like, as a sumo competitor, and he's like, I need to go talk to my whatever the word is for like a um, a sumo trainer. And he was going to go talk to a sumo trainer about uh, his tactics for his next fight. And when his record got bad, he was like thinking he should bow out because a sumo record of such and such would not qualify you for the such and such. All the, this like technical sumo stuff that was like way over my head, but he was so invested in it. It was, it was tremendous. So I was just like, yeah, this is great. But then you've like, you've got the kind of wacky stuff like that and Kenta's thing, but you've got just some straightforward, straight laced, no nonsense pro wrestling promos in there. And Shingo is the man when it comes to that for me. Even if there wasn't subtitles, I'd be getting fired up watching this man's promos. The cadence, the look in his eyes, it's just unbelievable. And it adds so much to my appreciation of him as a wrestler. Because 
what he feels and how he approaches wrestling comes through so much in those promos. You see what he's all about when he was talking about um, going into the Ibushi match, how Ibushi, I've been chasing you for 14 years and stuff like that. It just, uh, it just adds. And like, cause you know, it's, you know, he's such a guy that like Naito lives, sleeps, breeds wrestling that he has had, He's been acutely aware of the fact that he hasn't had a singles match with Kota Ibushi, and he wanted it. And Ibushi reciprocated that as well in his promos. And then going into the Okada match, oh my god, he got me so psyched up for the Okada match going into it, and then in the promo afterwards as well. Just amazing. And the, the things he did to build up uh, the feud of Suzuki towards the end of the tournament and now coming out of the tournament... He is just great at that stuff, and um, even the young lines getting in on the mix. My God, they were, they did a great job at considering. They it was just the three of them, and they had to stretch the same story of back and forth wins and losses out over the course of a month. And God bless Gabriel Kidd, the guy. He's certainly not shy because he was happy to talk for six or seven minutes at a time at some point, and he he was finding uh he was finding points to make and things to talk about and take jibes at, at things the other young lions had said and uh, be like Suji, I saw what you said after this show. You said that I thought that or that I was complacent or whatever. Well, I just showed you, mate. This uh, or I beat you with my double underhook suplex. Let's see you find a counter for that. And then the next day, Suji would be like, you don't think I can get a counter for your double underhook suplex? I'll be training. I'll get a counter. You just watch. Just things like that. That just, you know, when these three lads are just wrestling each other over and over again, fair play to them for finding little stories to tack onto it. They definitely made the most with what they had. And I know something we'd like to come on to at the end, but the formatting of these cards just kind of perfect and I think it really helped with having that young line match at the start as you kind of to wet your whistle but you mentioned Shingo and we're talking sort of MVPs and looking at the some of the the grapple ratings on on here for, for like people in terms of what they thought who who had the best matches we have Ishii here at sort of pretty much just over four I know Gareth very handily has done excluding Yano and Yujiro what that adds into the mix poor Yujiro uh, poor Yujiro um who I will say was not not as bad as what I thought he would be, but uh, but then the other people we've mentioned on there, Kota Ibushi as well, mm-hmm. uh, 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 in second, Shingo in third, um, and then we got Osprey in fourth, and then Jay White in fifth, and then we got Akada in sixth. So, mm-hmm. but it seems to be that very much like in particular the sort of top four in terms of match quality, they they led that, and I'm gonna go and in some ways kind of go around MVPs that I suppose you think are the, the kind of the most improved and the quiet kind of MVPs. And Ben, I'm going to go to you. In terms of Shingo, was he, I mean, Alan has said there in terms of his promo ability, which I'm going to have to go back and, and have a look at some of these, the match, you know, we agree that generally he had the best match in the tournament. It didn't feel like in some ways though, at times he had a substantial G1. Would I be wrong in thinking that? Yeah, I mean, for me, I didn't really, when we're talking MVP and I was thinking, you know, who do I enjoy most out of the tournament? Obviously, Ishii springs to mind. In this year, obviously, Suzuki sprung to mind. But I didn't really consider Shingo for me, despite the fact he's in one of the, you know, the, the top three matches of the tournament as far as my my own ratings go. 
Uh, and then again, I looked at my top ten, and he's you know he's in there four times. Um, so that tells you everything, doesn't it? He's kind of he, he's, he's slotted into that kind of being underappreciated role, um, despite the fact we all we all know how good he is. Um, I think what part of it is the fact that we're all you know kind of looking at him going, he's great, but it's a bit like the issue problem, isn't it? We can all sit at home and go, he's great, and he's going to have you know people's best match of the tournament. But when's it going to actually come to something? We're all kind of going, yeah, but at the same time, he's never really going to threaten to win the block, and he's never really going to threaten to... We hope he, he could move up further in the car, but it feels like they've got him slotted at a, at a very certain level. Um, I think that's kind of his problem, like, like I say, not just by fans, but I think by, by the booking, um, he just gets taken for granted more than anything. Already as well, because, I mean, how long has he been with the company? I mean, would you agree with this, Sarah? Yeah, I I think so. Like I like Shingo's one of the best wrestlers in the world, but I think the way New Japan have portrayed him to the wider audience and just even the booking of him in the tournament, it kinda lends itself that you kind of nearly forget about him because he's not a story that is being pushed by the company. That's how I would kind of feel about him because like Shingo is just incredible. Like he really is. If if you just kind of isolate him in the tournament and if you go watch his matches you're like holy mother of god why isn't this man champion screw Sonata, screw evil screw all these other people why why isn't he like the guy that they're pushing to the moon because he has everything that you would want from a top guy and when you think about it it's funny when he went to the company he was in the junior division (laughs) like like toiling away toiling away teaming with, with Bushi which I loved but it never really made sense. You know, and he went undefeated. He went through that best of Super Juniors. And then he went into the G1 last year. And again, we were all like, this is the time now. They've, they've moved him up. He's going to make such an impact in the G1. And then he floundered. I think he only had like six points. And it was the same again. It just feels like he's toiling away. And when he won the Never title earlier this year, it kind of felt like, right, that's going to be his time with the belt to go and beat all these people and have all these matches up and down the card with, with both juniors and heavyweights. And it was going to be like the Shingo belt, which would have been perfect. But then obviously COVID hit. We didn't get that. And then we, we had that great match with Suzuki at Jingu. And then it just, it's it's like they don't know what to do with them now. I don't know. It just feels like we don't want to move them up too much on the card, but we don't want them to, to flounder either. So he's just kind of sitting there. And I think because they don't really know, that's how the audience kind of take it in. If you're just looking at the tournament in general, I'm rambling, but basically Shingo deserves better. <laughs> it's fun. It's funny because I'm probably the uh, biggest Shingo fanboy on the on the call. Um, I think I'm probably the biggest Shingo fanboy in the world, and uh, at the same time, I think from hearing everything you guys are saying, I'm actually the most content and satisfied with Shingo in, in New Japan. I'm uh, like, if this is his ceiling, I'm totally fine with that. And I think a part of that is because I have a natural acceptance of Ghetto's conservatism in how he books guys, particularly guys who aren't his new young prospect. You know, he'll he'll take risks and throw a rocket pack on a... 24 year old that he thinks can carry the company for the next 15 years but I mean 
Look at a guy like Shibata when he came back, or a guy like uh, some of the older guys who we think he can still do stuff with, or um, just different guys who you think that you could do so much more with that wrestler. But Ghetto kind of has a history of keeping people sort of slotted at a certain level, and whether it's a case of waiting for them to kind of prove something, or it's just not how he sees that person they don't really evolve into um, much else. Like, Ibushi was someone that, like, if I was booking, I mean, in 2013, I would have strapped the rocket to Ibushi, but Ghetto waited with him and waited and waited and made sure it was... I'd say it probably wasn't until Omega and crew left and Ibushi made his sort of signal of intent by signing that contract. It was only then when Ghetto really started pushing Ibushi like a top guy who didn't lose to just anyone, who beat most people and had, as we've seen, great records in three G1s in a row now. And with a guy like Shibata, it took a little while. And with other people, like a guy like Kanemaru comes in, you know, very similar to Shingo, a seasoned veteran, great worker. He's given his slot. He's he's used in a role on the cards. And he's appreciated for that role, but he's not going to be moving out of his lane and uh, certainly not for any long period of time. And I think Shingo is probably viewed as a um, beefed up version of Kanemaru, not in terms of size, although he is, but more so in terms of his stature as a star and his ability as a wrestler. And I think Ghetto appreciates that. And I I, first of all, when, when he was put in as a junior in two two years ago, a lot of people were kicking up a fuss over that. And, like, some big Shingo fans, like, oh, particularly fans who don't like New Japan, they were like, oh, look at this, just being wasted as a junior, they should be making him champion. And I was like, this is great, there's a ton of awesome juniors in New Japan for him to work with, he's going to have kick-ass matches, he's going to get over. It's a great way to, to introduce him. And the push they gave him through that junior division having the incredible junior tag title matches, the, the best ones I think we've seen in five, six years, and then having that all-timer best of the Super Juniors, which just so happened to be alongside Will Ospreay, also having an all-timer best of Super Juniors, and then meeting in the final. Like, I mean, to me, he put stuff in the history books during those uh, few weeks. Like, that's that's legacy shit to me, and... Like, I'm delighted with it. Just because it's not winning the IWGP heavyweight title at the Tokyo Dome, it doesn't negate how great of achievement it was for me. And then just having him go out and beat Kojima on a big um, a big uh, Osaka Dominion show to uh, cement him as a heavyweight days after the Osprey match, and then having him enter the G1 where... Like, yeah, his record wasn't great, but they gave him a main event in Osaka against Naito where they went nearly half an hour and had this big epic match just because he didn't win. it's it's That stuff is legacy-building things, and Shingo's legacy will probably never be the poster boy of the company with the titles, but he's going to have a similar legacy to a guy like Ishii, I think, when it's all said and done. Um Probably more, uh, he'll probably have more W's in the, the record book than Ishii does because I think losing more D wins is kind of part of Ishii's whole aura. But Shingo is, he's going to do great things. He's going to continue to do great things in New Japan. He's done 
Like, if you were to offer me everything he's done already in the last two years when he joined the company, I'd have bit your hand off. So I'm a very content Shingo fan. I, I'm just happy to see him being used in, in a way where they appreciate what they have, I think. Yeah, they could do more, but they could probably do more with a bunch of guys on the roster. I think that's possibly part of the frustration you end up feeling as a fan, and perhaps we forget that, that there's so many people they could be doing more with. But you can't do more with everyone. And that's where the like absolute laziness and refusal to just grab the opportunity given to him from a guy like Sonata is so frustrating because and evil too, because it's like, oh my god, there's so many other guys who you just know would absolutely take the ball and run with it here in this situation. But yeah, like we'll we'll talk about the final, we'll talk about Sonata's G one, I'm sure. But yeah, that's that's where that becomes extra frustrating because there is so much talent throughout the throughout the cards. Even a guy like Taichi, you, you kind of were talking about kind of um, people who are sort of dark horse MVPs, I suppose. JP like mm-hmm. Taichi is is a guy who kind of I think did better than a lot of people would have expected. And guys like him, like you'd like to see what they do in the Sonata or Evil role. Like if you if you gave Sonata the push that Evil got this year. Or if you gave Tai Chi the push that Evil got this year, I'd I'd wager good money he'd have he'd have delivered a bit more. Let's go straight into it in terms of those most improved, and that's something I can't disagree with in any way, shape, or form. Like, there's lots of people I think who managed to have sort of better tournaments than perhaps we we expected at times, perhaps given the circumstances. Um, Benno, going to go to you in terms of most improved. You mentioned Tai Chi there. Is he up there with your most improved? I mean, there's several people that you could put into this category, particularly from the A block. Definitely, yeah. I mean, Tai Chi, you look at like those grapple stats, and he's you know he's not at the front of the pack, but he's in the middle of the pack. Like I was raving about Minoru Suzuki before, and based on the grapple stats, he's got literally the same average match as Suzuki, three point five six, um, and obviously jumps up a bit when you uh, go up to three point six nine when you uh, you take out some of the uh, the dead weight from the tournaments. Um, yeah, like he was someone who going to this tournament, he's not someone I've been a fan of over the years, and I think he's kind of turned, changed some hearts and minds in the in the last couple of years. But I think this was like the coming out party for that. I think a lot of us were kind of stuck in our ways of like remember when we went to see um, that New Japan show in uh, in Altrincham, and he was uh, he was in there with Osprey, and it was like oh we want you know Osprey had this big match in the UK, and it was with Taichi. And I think we've all got that that and similar moments burned in our brain. And, you know, the entrance is, it's funny, but it's, it's, it's mid-card, isn't it? Um, and he's clearly not even like, you know, he's in the past, he's not even been like the second guy in Suzuki Goon. So I think we've all got this baggage with him. And I felt like this G1 was the time where it opened a lot of eyes. It was like, oh, he's not the same wrestler anymore. He can, you know, he's not he's not going to be up there with your, with your Ishis and your Shingos as far as match averages go. But he's not dead weight either. Um, he's someone who, I think going forward, you know, when you see the blocks get revealed and obviously when someone like Yujiro gets announced, you kind of groan and think, okay, that's the night off. I think a lot of people would have said that about Taichi going into this year. Um, and it probably was wrong to say that because of the improvements that he's made. But, you know, you know since he's put the weight on, and he's started to take things a little bit more seriously in ring. But I think even the staunchest haters... Um, can't feel that way about him anymore. So, yeah, he's certainly up there. Yoshihashi's up there for me, but, you know, we're talking 
you know, if, if my expectation of Yoshihashi was 2.5, it might be 3 now. Um, I don't know if that counts as a, as a most improved. and obviously Great, I think Greatest tree-offs like... wrestler in the world, I have to say at the <laughs> moment. There is that. And our mate Mark Buckles, is always uh, singing from the rooftops about uh, about Yoshihashi as well. Uh, but I do think, yeah, I think the, the improvement is, you know, it's been, you know, before this G1. But I feel like you know he's. I think you look at someone like a Tai Chi, and that uh, he's moved to a to a higher you know expectation level for me, and he's going to be someone who yeah in future G ones he's going to be someone I'm going to be glad uh, is in the mix there. Um, but yeah, obviously there's Jay White too. But I feel like we could probably spend about half an hour on Jay White, so I'll leave that there. How how about you, Sarah Flan? How did you in terms of your most improved? Was there was there people because you mentioned at times this being kind of a chore. Were there people, though, that you were pleasantly surprised by? In short, no. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, but I think, like, I echo the thoughts on Tai Chi, and I think it's because, like, I think we were right in years previous that he he was a chore because he had the Suzuki-Goon antics, and I don't think... It was part of his character, of course, that he didn't really take it all seriously. And he was just kind of there to cause shenanigans. And when you have enough shenanigans going on, you just kind of get sick of people and you just want to turn off. Whereas I think this year, he played it a lot more seriously in his matches, at least. So it kind of gave you that something to grab into and he became a serious threat. So you treat him like a serious threat and you're like, I need to watch this Tai Chi match because he he could do something here and actually... Maybe not win the tournament, but, but but go on to to be you know in the mix later on in the tournament, and I think he really proved that this year. And yeah, Yoshihashi as well. I, I felt I kind of I feel so sorry for Yoshihashi because we're all so <laughs> horrible to him. Like he he just gets the brunt of everything. But he he's one of those people. He's the epitome of you tried. So we can't be mean because you tried your hardest in every single match, and that's what he does. He goes out there and, and does his best. So I I think that warrants something. Um, but yeah, I don't really have any sort of people that didn't exceed my expectations. I think I have a list of people who did worse than I expected them to during the G1 more so than anything. Like that list goes on. I mean, I could mention Jay White as a positive, but I'm a big fan of his anyway. So I knew he was going to have a good tournament. Well, I'll give you one that I think uh, exceeded my expectations. Um, Maybe uh, it, it might sound like a strange name to say this because he's someone who we'd always attach such high expectations to. But Hiroshi Tanahashi, you know, like, especially with the storyline of him kind of being the the weak half, the weak link of the tag team with Ibushi, and it, him coming out in that first match and making such a statement of intent with, um, with Naito. And then... There was a bunch of other ones. Do you know what one I really liked was the Goto match? Just middle of the tournament, just a real sneaky, good pro wrestling match. Like, there there wasn't much uh, pizzazz to it. There there wasn't much um, uh, excitement, but it was just a good, hard-nosed pro wrestling match where there was a story in terms of body part work and just an intensity trade. The match, just two old-season war, workhorses going at it that have had great matches with each other before and, and just having a good good match and there was a lot of that with Tanahashi and he was using different finishes getting different things over throughout the tournament and yeah I really was impressed by him and he's someone who you can tell working in this COVID environment 
he's always thinking about different things he can do to make the best of a bad situation. And again, going back to promos, he's a guy who, when you watch his promos, it was less about him and him being in the G1 and more they were kind of promos about he was representing the company and speaking to the fans and kind of talking about like what other guys would be in their promos trying to kind of get over their their story or the match he just had. Tanahashi would do that, but he'd also be really sending a message to you about, hey, we're trying to really um, trying to really give you guys something and we hope we're doing right by you and we hope you're you're doing okay and you're enjoying with, with things and stick stick with us stick with new japan we will reward you we're gonna keep working hard that's what we saw from him he he gave he didn't just send that message he gave that message in the ring every night because that guy just kept working so hard so much harder than you'd have any right to expect from him for the shift he's already put in in the last few years and how his body is probably a little worse for wear for sure you can tell by just how the guy walks yeah, I actually think this this year is the year I've enjoyed Tanahashi the most in a long time, even though he won the G1 like two years ago. I actually really enjoyed him because I think he took you on that journey, you know, with fans, not as many fans being there, being quite quiet. You lived the G1 through him. And I think like something like that is so important. And that's what he does better than anyone. Like you said, just he cares about you, the fans, and it feels like he's talking to you when you're sitting at home and he's doing that backstage promo. It's like he's talking to me. He cares about me and he hopes that I'm doing well and he's doing everything in that ring for me, the fan. And throughout that whole G1, that just felt really, it just felt nice, you know, and Tanahashi, I think, has never really settled into that role. And like everyone knew he wasn't going to win. You know, because just because of how his story is played out. But that didn't mean that when you were sitting and watching him, you're like, but that's Tanahashi. He could win. Why? Because he's Tanahashi. You know, at the end of the day, you just get sucked into him. So, yeah, that is actually one I didn't even think about. It's fascinating with him because it's like he's moved on from the ace to the ambassador of the company. If yes, anything. that's a great word for it. He is, isn't he? He's that, that kind of overall figurehead. And I always think now with the image of him, it's the it's the virtual crowd hugs as almost being like the kind of ambassadorial sign of like kind of like, I love you, we love you as a company. And he does that and he gets the responses back as well. And it's it's hard not to think of like, that's just something that's entirely organic, but it kind of sum, sums it up. And I'd also uh, like to... I also, uh, sorry. I'm sorry, JP, I get a little creeped out by the intensity of the eye contact with those hooks. Stares at the soul. <laughs> He's a good lad. That's how we can end this call. <laughs> Big virtual hug. But um, you mentioned him earlier on. Um, Going to go to you, Benno. We've at times been critical about Jay White. Um, I think now is possibly the... I know, I can't believe it. Um... Joe, rest in peace. He's not dead. I don't know why I did that. Sounds a bit harsh. But <laughs> he pointed it to the sky, everyone. Yeah. I spoke to him today. You'll all be pleased to know he's very annoyed about something and it's to do with COVID testing, but I'll just leave, leave, leave that there. Um, <laughs> classic Joe. Um, but bringing up Jay White, someone who we've been brutal about, was this the year that we, that we got it, Benno? 
Yeah, and that's the question, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, is it us or is it, or is it Jay White? Um, you know, I would submit last year in my top four matches of the year was 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 the match with, you know, I've, I've had him, you know, up there for me, the, you know, the match with Ibushi. Um, he is, you know, I, I gave that 4.75 stars, more a higher rating than I gave any match uh, in this G1. But for the rest of the tournament, all we did was moan about him, wasn't it? Uh, you know, uh, and I think, this year, to be honest, was the year where for me maybe it clicked more, maybe he put it together more. He came in motivated as well. That's the other thing. And I think, yeah, we started to see things that, you know, the likes of Sarah have, will have been pointing out in the past um, about Jay White and the likes of Steph, who's told us off many a times uh, about Jay White as well. You know, we've started to see it more. So I do think it's a combination of the two. But I feel like whereas last year, you know, I was singing, you know, his praises from the Ibushi match, and I was like, oh, how smart is Ibushi to fit the Jay White shenanigans so perfectly into a great wrestling match? I feel like Jay White has done that himself this year. Um, and, you know, you mentioned before, going through, you know, the top performance of the tournament, he's in the top five as far as match quality goes, and that would usually be the thing you'd beat him over the head with, isn't it? And maybe his ceiling is a little bit, you know, lower on average, but I can't say there was a Jay White match in this tournament I didn't enjoy. You know, every time I feel like he had, you know, one of Osprey's best matches, slotting Osprey into his style of match. You know, even when he was, you know, messing around with, you know, Taichi and Yujiro and not taking things entirely seriously, they were hugely entertaining matches. You know, when he was hiding from Minoru Suzuki and, you know, stalling and being like the, the hokey heel he is and, you know, slotting into Minoru Suzuki's pattern of matches right down to the you know the final match of the A block we mentioned earlier with Ishii so yeah you know as far as consistency across the tournament goes like I, like I say I enjoyed every second of Jay White and I feel like he made this tournament fresher I think like Alan said earlier on his very presence the fact that he that he was he came in he looked motivated he looked like him you know he looked the best he's ever looked as well you know as far as physically goes too um, I really think he gave this uh, this tournament the the shot on the arm that it needed. And yeah, I might not have expected to to say that going in, but I came out with tons more respect for Jay White. And it kind of made me think, you know, similar to Taichi, you know, when, when, when exactly did this change or did it change? Is it just us? Because I know, uh, you know, obviously you, Sarah, you've been uh, singing the praises of, uh, of Jay for a while and it must be uh, cathartic for you to see uh, even the likes of us, uh, grumpy old man, uh, coming round on him finally. Yeah, because I think... I I was there for the finals last year in in person, and like I haven't actually I haven't watched that match back. I I just don't want to do it because it was just so perfect. The the whole dynamic of Jay and his gang of merry men in the Bullet Club coming out against Ibushi, who was alone in the ring, but he had the whole crowd behind him. And I think I was a fan of Jay White before then. I always have been, but I think since that moment, I was like. There is no one in New Japan that can do what Jay White does and actually have everyone hate him. Like, people hate him. And that was the great thing about this G1 in all of his bollocksology that he goes on in the ring. You're like, I want to see this little shit get beaten. Like, you just want to see him. Like, and that was what made the final night so perfect because we were all kind of like, oh, he's going to win. He's going to get his way and he's going to go into the finals and it's going to be this whole power dynamic thing in Bullet Club but we saw him get beaten and it was almost like a victory for all of us to be like yes he didn't get his way he didn't get what he wanted and that's what makes Jay White so great and 
I think what made this year different to last year was, yeah, he kind of had the start of the match, he'd play around with the crowd and do the claps and whoever he was against, he'd kind of, you know, berate them a little bit. But then he did back it up in ring and there wasn't as much of the interference as there was in previous years. He kind of, he's like, no, I'm Jay, this is the J1, I'm going to let myself do the talking now after I lure them into a false sense of security. And, you know, when you compare, say, Jay White to Evil, who kind of had the story of Jay White from years previous with all the interferences and Dick To Go there being the spoiler as it was. I think nearly having Evil there made you appreciate, actually, Jay yeah. White's not that bad. Jay White's actually <laughs> really good. Yeah, that was it. It was, it was, it was I, I really think that that night and day comparison was like, oh, this is the bad version of that. And that that is literally what Evil gave like gave us this year. It gave us that comparison, and unlike Evil, like you said, for Jay White, I wanna I wanna see him lose. You know, he's an entertaining heel who I don't want to turn the channel. Evil comes out, and you know his fake ghetto gets involved. And I've loved Dick Togo previously, but I can't stand him in New Japan for that reason. As soon as he comes on screen, I almost want to turn off because you know what you're getting. Um, and yeah, I think we seeing that other side of the coin as well as Jay kind of putting it together a little bit more. Like you say, I think the uh, the early stage of his matches, I feel like he's his move set is is more much improved, and just the I think his matches are that little bit more dynamic, and he, you know he, he picks his spots for the stick a lot more. Um, I think that's all helped too. But yeah, I do think that that comparison for Evil and how much we're all just fed up of uh, of seeing Evil and his and his interference laden matches. I think that that really boosted them too this year. The difference for me between the two of them is that Jay is always working. Like whatever he's doing. He's okay. Maybe it's not necessarily um, working hard with flashy moves or whatever, or a big exchange. Although he does, he does plenty of that stuff. But it's if it's facial expressions or interacting with the ref or interacting with his opponent, shit talking the fans, like like things like when he went out to the crowd and was trying to lead them in, an, I think it was an Ibushi chat that one time, <laughs> and like he's always doing something, you know. Evil is never doing anything. He just has that same stupid look on his face. He just meanders around. He doesn't do anything. And then eventually, Dicto, I'll be honest, it, it may kill my journalistic credi- credibility here. And JP, feel free to boot me off the show after I say this. Um, but I, I gave up on Evil halfway through the tournament. I've Since this heel turn, I've seen enough of the guy... I've given him more than enough opportunities to show me something different. I'm not seeing anything different ever. And halfway through, I just started either skipping his matches or leaving them on in the background as I just did the washing up or something. You know, it's it's just I, I unless I hear someone say that he's doing some new stuff that's working really well and he's turned the corner. Like I don't intend to watch. Uh, at least not closely. I don't intend to watch match number four in a series with Naito since since uh, they came back from the the lockdown break. Like Jesus, that what an uninspiring main event that is. For I really like that lineup for that next show, but that main event like, zero interest in. Like I, can we can all close our eyes right now and picture the match? I'm sure, and I'd wager good money it won't be any different from what we're picturing. That completely sounds about right, and unfortunately, we're going to go into evil a bit more. 
Um, sorry, sorry to do that for inexplicable reasons, but already at this stage, is this a failure with Evil? The the double title reign? I know, and I'm going to go to you first, Sarah Flan, because there is the storyline aspect to this, which I have to say, I don't want to get involved in. I don't, I don't, I actively don't want to get engaged in because of these performances that I'm having to sit through. Yeah, so this is going to be one of the first times ever that I will ever admit that I was wrong um, in a public forum. I don't admit that too often. Uh, I, I, I like to, uh, you know, I if if I usually would be like, no, evil's great. What are you talking about? But then on the slide, like, oh god, he's shite. But this time, I'm like, I have to hold my hands up because at the start when we did our our round table, I was like, no, look, there's this deep story involved. Give it a chance. You know, evil will, will come good, and it, it's part of something bigger. And I really regret saying that because I just want this evil project to end, and I don't think there's end in sight because they're pushing him as like one of their top six guys now like he's in the promotional posters he's you know one of the headline guys on their website like he's on their merch and i know that's probably something we shouldn't read too much into but it's hard not to in new japan because they're so selective with the people that they put on all these promotional images and i it's such a failure because he has been given such an opportunity to be something really special and be you know this big guy in this story with Naito who's going to have the fans love him no matter what like Naito can do no wrong and he could easily get people to really hate him but people don't you and you can blame COVID crowds all you want if people actually like evil but I don't think there's anyone who's going to listen to this who will um but no no one cares literally everyone sees him and you can nearly hear the groans of the crowd when Dick Togo interferes and, you know, whatever he uses to wrap around people's necks. I can't remember what it is because I don't, I don't like to watch his matches. It's so a kind garage. Of I mean, he should be doing time for that. I'll just throw that it's out It's assault. There. It's, it's assault. attempted murder, Sarah. It's not far <laughs> off that. It's, like, it's terrible. There's so many other people that they could have in this role and instead they've chosen him and he's bombed and I don't think anyone can say otherwise and to hell with the story there's so many other stories they can tell with lij that would be so much better that don't involve him or sanada um i just i don't understand but i gato i i don't see him ending it anytime soon but it's, it's funny like nido was cutting a backstage promo and even he was like sorry guys evil again i know i'm sorry uh, it's gonna be crap you know like the fact <laughs> that you're having nido say that in backstage promos it's like does he know that it hasn't been great or is he just saying that because it's funny like it's hard to know now um i absolutely hate being in the position where i'm gonna play devil's advocate on a on an evil argument um, I, I certainly agree with all of you guys, but we should throw in the point that there is that tidbit that Evil's Night in Sumo Hall sold out before Block A, and you do get reports of him having quite a big following in Japan and merchandise moving and these kinds of things that, I mean, if these things were in the toilet, like New Japan, they're a... a they're run by some pretty shark-minded businessmen who I'm sure if those metrics were in the toilet, 
evil project evil would be scrapped a lot quicker than it would be if his performances were in the toy and the fact that they still seem gung-ho with it and if they continue to be gung-ho with it for the next year i think that's going to give us all the answer we need on in terms of has this thing been a success commercially and while it's not a success to us artistically if if it is such a big success commercially it's hard to knock them for for going with it and and positioning them as one of their top guys i'd love to see them be a bit more ambitious in term and, and acknowledge that the performance maybe isn't there and try some different things because i mean like if this thing is working commercially with as dire as his as it's been i can't imagine any tweaks are going to hurt it that much so you might as well try like tell him to go out and throw some different uh, spots into the repertoire tell him to uh maybe go out and try a few different facial expressions out there maybe just act like he's somewhat interested in what he's doing Do you know like it can't hurt so i'd like to see them try that stuff but i i do think it's worth pointing out that they're not a stupid company. They don't stick with things that are failing. And if this is something that is uh, is making them money and that they see a future in, you kind of have to understand why they're they're going to persist with it. And is that the case really with Sonada as well? Because you speak of the you speak of the metrics. I mean, it would work. It would be the same kind of logic in COVID times, especially. You're going to go with things that you think, well, actually, there's an audience for this. Um, we mention evil and him not trying. Um, is Sonada guilty of that, or is he, or is it stage fright, or is it a case that he just isn't good enough? Um, Benno. Evil to Sonata, mate. What a couple all of the cracking, stuff, yeah. all the exciting stuff's coming out now. <laughs> See, I was scared because I thought we were going to launch into two hours of uh, having a go at the lads, and you know, Sarah was going to tell us off um, <laughs> as the uh, as the Lij fan. But I think we can we can get our shots in now because yeah, you know, <laughs> you think I do think Evil was worse, and I think you know the grapple stats bear that out. You know, he's the oh, literally the third worst in the tournament. Uh, you know, with an average of three stars. You know, he was the gentleman's three of the tournament. The only two people worse than him, Yujiro and Yano. Like that tells you everything, doesn't it? Um, and I'm sure there were lots of people like Alan who were checking out. Sonada's further up, you know, on that totem pole. He's somewhere towards the middle. You know, maybe the back end of the middle. But I think with Sonada, it's it's expectation versus reality. Because I think with with evil, I think we all kind of saw it coming. And even even if you are an evil fan, I think even the people who are still out there, you know, and like like Alan said, it seems like there's plenty of them in Japan, and the numbers bear that out. And if they go with them at Wrestle Kingdom uh, on one of the the two big uh, big two one of the big matches on two of the two of the nights, I think that's going to tell us that too. But even the biggest fans in the world will go, yeah. But the problem is you've got Dick Togo on the outside. Sonata doesn't have that excuse. And Sonata is someone who, you know, how many years in a row has it been? Like, I put my pickums together last year uh, for Voices of Wrestling and went with Sonata all the way, and it didn't happen. And then this year, you heard those rumours again, and it was like, are they really going to go with Sonata? And this year, it felt like the year they pulled the trigger, and he just didn't live up to it. You know, I I would describe evil as dead behind the eyes, but I'd say that about Sonata too. Um, And I know it's supposed to be his gimmick with this 
cold skull stuff, but if if you're ever gonna show us more, this was the time to show us more. He got put in pretty much the two biggest matches of the tournament, and he disappointed in both. Um, you know, I'm not saying they they were two star matches, but they weren't up there with you know what you would expect from somebody being put in that position. And I'm not blaming Ibushi for the final. He can share the blame with uh, with Evil for the final B block day, but. Yeah, this was the time for Sonata if he was ever going to turn it up and and turn into the wrestler that you know the people who were still fans of him out there were were hoping he was going to be. This was the tournament for it, and I think he's he's just been a letdown. Uh, and that's it. I think a lot of the negativity behind this tournament is because of those two men, Sonata and Evil. Um, and yeah, and if Alan's right, and if you know the other numbers we, we see coming out of the Japan are right, we're in for many years of this. Um, and I don't think it's the end either, and I think that is um, that's the extremely worrying thing for me. Yeah, get a get... Alan. How about for yourself when it comes to Sonada? I mean, you've been brutal there on Evil, but you mentioned earlier on with Sonada. Just is he just simply not up to it? You know, the thing that really gave me cause for concern in seeing his performances in this G One. The thing that really stands out in this promotion amongst this roster of wrestlers where the level of polish is so, the standard is so high. Like you don't see a lot of sloppiness in the work. And I'm talking sloppiness which which takes you, the viewer, out of the match, but also sloppiness which puts his opponent at risk and puts himself at risk during the matches. The amount of that we're seeing from Sonata is, quite frankly, concerning. And really, like, if you're watching Game Changer Wrestling, uh, sorry, Benno, but if you're watching GCW and you're seeing a bunch of sloppiness trade the card, it's not going to really stand out. If you're watching a New Japan Pro Wrestling G1 Climax show Mm. and a guy is botching move after move in a main event, him and Naito, like, what was the last five minutes of that match? That was embarrassing. Like, uh, I I couldn't believe what I was watching. You just don't see that in a New Japan ring. Like, even like for the the shots for taking at Evil, I don't think anyone would say Evil is someone who is a sloppy. Word. I think Evil's pretty darn solid in the ring. Like, he's not flashy. He's not exciting. He tends to follow the same pattern. Everything is is pretty much by the numbers with him, and there's a lack of energy, but the guy's not botching moves left and right. Sonata is, and and of course there's the the unexpected botches and the, the slip-ups here and there, but then there's the things that he just does routinely that don't look good, like that freaking skull end. For anyone that listened to my uh, TNA show I did at the weekend um, with the great Galazzo Dan and Eddie Sideburns, a cheap plug, um, I pointed out how uh, in the triple threat ladder match between Loki, Jerry Lynn, and AJ Styles, they've got these three rickety ladders that uh, they've set up in the ring with no one holding them. They're they're rocking back and forth. And Loki gets uh, one of them, I think it was Styles, on the top of these ladders and manages to put him in a dragon sleeper that was tighter and more secure and looked better than every skull and Sonata has ever done in his career um, on the comfort of a stable wrestling mat. And uh, these guys were managing to put him to shame on the top of three rickety ladders. Like, he just doesn't, like, 
that, like, JP, I feel like we could jump on the floor right now and I could give you that move and we could make it look good. Do you know? It doesn't look oh, yeah. particularly... It doesn't look particularly hard to do, do you know? Like, just slot the arm. It's like, what is he at? Like, and, and I know, shout out to Gareth there, Drew Gulak <laughs> of the show. Gareth had some incredible rants, Joe-esque rants about the, uh, about the skull end being dropped and, and going for the moonsault. And, like, you do that once, maybe cool. It's, it's maybe a, an interesting wrinkle or whatever. But doing it over and over and... When so often it results in him like missing the moonsault or the guy getting the knees up, it's just I I can't take it's just such a it's just such mindless pro wrestling that and and like the lack of thought and Sonata's a guy who I've been watching him since he debuted as a as a rookie in All Japan in two thousand six two thousand seven alongside uh, Tetsuya aka T twenty eight who. Uh, would uh, go on to don the mask as Bushi. And um, those guys, like, back then, um, Bushi uh, Tetsuya was, like, super sloppy kind of uh, rickety kind of guy that you were worried about. And Sonata was rock solid. And now watching them, like, it's it's the opposite. Like, Bushi is someone you can pretty much rely on. He's going to be where he needs to be. and He's a really matured, good wrestler. And Sonata is just making mistakes you wouldn't expect from him and that you didn't see from him in his first couple of years wrestling. This guy was looking like he was going to be one of the top stars in Japanese wrestling. And I think it was 2010, 2011, he started getting a bit of a push in all Japan. They had him go to a champion carnival final. He was looking like the business lads. Great look, great energy in the ring, had an old school style, but one that worked for him. And... Then he just went off the boil for a couple of years, kind of moving around promotions, and just it just all went a bit weird for him. And when he came into New Japan, he had a, a nice little run on the indies right before starting in New Japan. He, he looked really good in Big Japan briefly doing their tournament. And then he shows up in New Japan the next week, and it's the LIJ thing. And from a character and look point of view, it's like, okay, he's found himself now, this this all looks like it could really work and they could have a guy on their hands. And it just never really happened. It's maybe if they had started pushing him sooner, maybe injuries have come into play with him. I don't know. Uh, I know the commentary has talked about previously him having nerve issues down his body with his neck and stuff like that. But there's always going to be an element of kayfabe in, in the commentary for sure. But it could be coming from something, a nugget of something real, that maybe the guy isn't as capable as he was physically 15 years ago. Like, it's a very real possibility. I mean, he wouldn't be the first wrestler to be getting into their mid-30s and having injury issues really causing them to struggle. And it might be that, but either way, whatever the cause is, they really need to think about whether he's fit for purpose as a main eventer. We know one thing, they're not going to want a guy in there going and putting their other main eventers at risk and causing injuries. Like That's that's not going to fly in New Japan, no matter how much money he's making at the box office or how much he's drawing fans in. If he's hurting Okada or if he's hurting uh, Shotaro Mino when he comes back, like, yeah, that's, that's not going to fly. Do you think it's the contract status? Because that's always been something that's reported, as if it's almost like there is 
I think I think they've cleaned up all that stuff now. But it can, think... might have left a kind of bit of residual kind of feeling about it, and then that's something that can end up just kind of lingering about. You think on his side or, or both sides? Or... I Possibly both sides, because it was something that Gareth pointed out on one of the shows with us, is that he's lost a lot of big matches. He's been he's been booked into some into some big matches, and he's always been on the losing end. And it, 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 we wonder at times, is in fact the faith that the shown in him is more, this is part of the LIJ storyline, so we're kind of obliged to push it because it's good at the box office, but we're not going to give him the big win because this isn't someone we can actually go with really on top. And he lost to Yoshihashi in uh, in this G1, so we don't have to look back very far to see him losing to a, mm. a low-tier guy. Um, uh, although I'll never say anything bad about Yoshihashi, unlike everyone else. I've, I've got, <laughs> always have. Um, but uh, it's um, it, there could be some of that still there. But I suppose it, it, like we still need to determine, was this a, here's a little pat on the back, we'll give you a G1 final? Mm-hmm. Or was this setting him up for crossing the threshold into future, basically crossing the threshold that I think Evil has crossed already? Mm-hmm. I don't think Sonata's crossed that threshold into being a guy that, like Sarah said, they're going to put on the posters and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think uh, his positioning at the Dome will probably... Uh, he's, he's not got anything for power struggles, does he? So there's not really a... There's not a clear path for what he might be doing at the Dome that would be a big deal, that would kind of take him over that threshold that I talked about. So... It could just—it could just have all been a backpack. This—this this could be something we don't really need to worry about. He could just be slotting right back into being tag team guy. And I wonder who he teams with in tag league. Does he team with Shingo? Does he team with Naito? That might—if he's teaming with—well, he won't team with Naito because Naito's the champ. So it'll likely be him and Shingo. Who's going to eat the falls in that team? That's going to tell you a lot, mm. won't it? Definitely. And you mentioned, I'm going to go to Sarah now, because Sarah is someone, you. we've spoken to you about how invested you are in the LIJ storyline. Although I should preface, it always seemed to me very Hiromu-based. That's that's where the love was. That's where the love was um, when it came to the LIJ, sto- LIJ storyline. How do you feel that it's played out for Evelyn Sonada? Because in some ways, even though they're split up as a tag team, it's hard not to group them together. Well, I think people said that their gear was finally matching for the first time in forever when they weren't a team anymore, um, which I thought was actually very funny and, and very true. Um, but I will say this in regards to Sonata, and it's a very funny story. Um, like I liked, I like Sonata. I liked his big win over Okada in the G1 last year. I remember very clearly I was watching it in a bar in Tokyo, and it was insane, the crowd reaction to him. And I think Sonata is very much beloved in Japan. And you can see that reaction even when he beat Evil in the B-Block finals. Everyone immediately got their phones out to do the light thing before Sonata even said to do the light thing. I don't really understand the light thing, but it's a thing and people do it. So, mm. But when I was in, after Royal Quest, when we were, I was in London, I was in a Shake Shack with, with my brothers and I was with uh, Emma and Zig. And we were just sitting there waiting for our Shake Shack. And then I just see Emma with like a big like panicked look on her face and she was like banging the table trying to get her attention. We're like, what is wrong with Emma? What what's she doing? And then I turn around and I see this large Japanese man on his phone scrolling away 
and then it's Sonata. So obviously, we try and alert the table. Sonata's in Shake Shack. And we're all sitting there like, what do we do? I don't know why we're like, what do we do? Just because Sonata's in Shake Shack. But we were like, what do we do? <laughs> so I bit the bullet. And my hand's like this. Like, again, Sonata's not exactly like my favorite wrestler. But seeing him out in the wild, I was like, Sonata's my favorite wrestler. I need to go talk to Sonata now. Handshaking. And like I tap him on the shoulder, and I would never do this, especially celebrities and famous people with food. You don't interrupt them. But he was waiting for his food, so I was like, "This is okay. He hasn't got it yet. We're not like, you know, distracting him from eating his burger." So I tap him on the shoulder, and of course we're all wearing wrestling merch because we're losers who have nothing else to wear other than wrestling merch. Like, hello, sir. Big fans, can we get a photo as we all gather around? And he was very nice. And Zig was wearing an old All Japan Champions Carnival shirt, and you know he was very taken aback. And he was going through the back of his shirt, and we were like, "This guy, yeah, legend," you know. And then he gets his burger, he walks out, takes a nice picture for Instagram, and walks away. And since that day, I'm like, I will never say a bad word about my personal close friend, Sonata, because of. I'll say it to you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. those <laughs> 10 seconds in Shake Shack in London meant a lot to us. <laughs> and since then, I, it's so stupid. This is a warning to for everyone out there. Do not get attached to wrestlers because of 10-second interactions, because it's bad. But since then, I've had, like, I actually really like Sonata because he was nice to me in 10 seconds in Shake Shack. And... I nearly feel really sad when I just see how much he's bombing. Like, it actually, I get really sad. Like, that match with Naido was such a letdown. And I actually think that was the biggest letdown of the tournament. Because whatever about him making the finals, but up to that point, that was Sonata's chance to prove that he deserved to be a top guy. He's in there not only with the, you know, the double champion of the company, but the... He's not really the. He's the leader of Lij. You know, he's he's the guy that people know as you know the main guy in Lij, and that was his chance to show that he could hang with Naito, and he shit the bed, and it was just like you felt so deflated when he won because it just felt so undeserving. You're like you shouldn't have beaten Naito. You're not good enough to beat Naito. You're nowhere near his level, and then. When he's against his old tag team partner, like I so wish we could just throw them back into tag league and forget any of this stuff that happened this year happened. Put them back in, in tag league, let them win and face the gorillas of destiny at Tokyo Dome because it's just it's upsetting. And he's always kind of been the odd one out in Lij because it always felt like he's been on his own path in comparison to everyone else. He's still intertwined, obviously. But it just always felt like he was kind of set in his own way. He had his, he has a story with Okada. And, you know, that was really good. But now, I don't know, it kind of felt like the evil stuff was happening. He wasn't really involved. And now he's suddenly back on top of the card, you know, in, in the G1 finals. And it just kind of feels all over the place. And I think that really sums him up. He is all over the place. Mm. And... As much as he has this cold, cold school character, it hasn't developed since the day he joined Lij all those years ago. He's changed his gear and had different hair and beards, but that's about it. You know, he he talks to the crowd after the matches, but I I think there's something we're missing. 
I don't know. I think we're missing that connection with him that the Japanese fans do. Because the Japanese fans clearly love him. They know all the cues when he's in the ring. They know all the cues post-match. I I think we're missing that connection. And I don't actually know what it is. And I wish I did. Because there's clearly something in him that we're missing. I don't know. It's going to cause me great, great pain to make this comparison. But uh, is it maybe an element of... um... The uh, stoicism of Mitsuharu Misawa, which was always apparently like a big thing that got him over with the Japanese crowds. And just to us, that might, to, to a Western fan that's used to a rambunctious American wrestling and, and whatnot, like the, the first time I saw Misawa, I was like, this guy doesn't like do much, like facially or anything. It's, it's very just kind of. Like, almost like he's asleep out there. Like, he'll be pulling his trunks over his belly button occasionally and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and like, but eventually you get used to it and you kind of understand the Misawa character and how and how he goes about his matches and, and everything. That just It all comes together into one amazing package that created one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Sonata's kind of got that similar stoicism which maybe that appeals to the Japanese fans or his fans in the same way that Misawa's stoicism was something that helped him become the star that he did in the 90s. And obviously the current modern New Japan fan in Japan is, I'm sure, very different from a 1992 All Japan fan. But I know there could be some similar DNA there in terms of how they are both... uh, uh, kind of attaching themselves to their fan base and how their fan base are viewing them. It could be something like that that maybe just, yeah, doesn't doesn't necessarily click with us so obviously, mm. but it clicks with them. And he does well in those popularity polls as well, doesn't he, Sonata? Which... Well, Joe Lanza went on quite the rant them recently, so we, we better be careful with, with using them. Uh, I, 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 think, I think Jiro could sell out uh, Joe Lanza's <laughs> or whatever he said that I couldn't do. Oh, oh, we've had a contribution from Sarah. <laughs> uh, Don't worry, we'll, 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 we'll get on to the Champions Carnival, I promise. <laughs> yeah, leave us later. Jiro's excellent. <laughs> in that and that jacket, I'll tell you what, well, I, I'd have killed for Jiro rather than Evil and Sonata in this tournament <laughs> on a personal level. Um, for one kind of thing, talking about the worst stuff of the tournament. Worst match, um... I want to say Evil versus Sonada. I mean, unless it was a performance art piece where two people who apparently knew each other pretended that they didn't and did a hell of a job while doing it. Um, how about for you guys? Benno, you've, you love B-Block. You're big, <laughs> you know, you're Mr. B-Block. King of the B-Block, if anything else. was uh, What were some of the absolute stinkers that you saw from that? The Benno block, was it? The Benno yeah, block, I, I... yeah. I finally got to make my debut on uh, on John Pollock's like Daily Audio, and it was a, it was one of those random B block shows right in the middle where like even now looking back, it's like I can't remember much about it. That's the thing about the B block though; it stands for Benno. <laughs> there you go, um, and it's bang average, just like me. Um, yeah, it was just. It, I don't think there's anything there though that I would go, okay, that was the obvious worst match of the tournament. I think the the issue there was it was just a blare of average. 
Um, like, if you want to go purely on star ratings, it's going to be a Yano match as far as, like, lowest ratings that gave out. But I think you're most, you know, you're willing to give that, aren't you? You know, you know what Yano's uh, place in the tournament is and you don't expect much anyway. Yujiro is someone who, you know, he, he was in a lot of the worst matches of the tournament. But, you know, well, the worst, maybe not the worst matches overall, but people's individual worst matches, you know, in his block. But I think Gareth talked me and you round on it, JP, and that, you know, he's someone who, he fills a role. You know, not everyone needs to be the winner. You, you need you need someone who can be bottom of the table. You need a Fulham uh, in the Premier League. You need someone to uh, to eat those losses. So I don't even think he stands out that much. I, really, what it leaves you with is maybe, maybe I'm more saying most disappointing rather mm-hmm. than worst, but that Evil and Sonata match, like, that, that, is, that is the one for me where it just it is. You know, we've just... Had a good go at them, so I won't, uh, I won't bury them again. But that is the match where it was like, if you compare it to expectations, and again, if you went pure star ratings, probably Yano, you, you could pick him with Yano for worst matches of the tournaments. I think that's it. I, I think it's 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 that match really that that stands out for me. You know, there were a lot of bang average, say, Juice Robinson matches in this tournament. Um, I don't think he had a particularly standout tournament, but I think he had he had good moments, but he had a lot of matches where I'd go, yeah, that was three stars, I'm not going to think about that again. Whereas Evil and Sonata, I, I came out of that match angry, and I came out with like a visceral reaction to, to, to watching them two go in there with a that huge um, spot and just do nothing with it. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of what really stands out for me as far as worst matches go. Um, I don't think there's there's anything in this tournament that was more disappointing. Um, and yeah, again, considering the expectations that were on their shoulders, I think that says everything. Yeah. How about for you? How about for you, Sarah? What was your what was your worst of the tournament? Worst match? Or I worst think I touched anything? on that. Yeah, I, I think I touched on it with Sonata and Naido purely because of the gravitas of that match and it was supposed to be up until that point one of Sonata's biggest matches of his career and you know his main eventing and it just completely flopped like it like you left that match and it just felt like why you know you just left a feeling that shouldn't have happened and it was kind of usually G1 matches don't ever make me feel like that because it's a tournament you know you're always going to have your upsets or the people that you didn't expect to win you know, win, or people that you didn't want to win, win. And that one was just like, oh, I didn't want that to happen, and it just left a sour taste in my mouth. But but there's there's one person that, that Benno mentioned, um, um, and it's Juice Robinson. I thought he was so shit. Sorry. I just thought he, like, if, if you're talking about, like, someone who's regressed, for him, I just feel like he just completely, like, why was he there? Like, they bothered to fly him back in and have him quarantined for two weeks to go out and do that like why would you bother and you have all these other people that you could have used at your disposal you know you could have used the excuse to to move show up you know I think he would have slotted into a role really well and I think having someone like him would have livened up the B block you know if we're just picking from people within the within the tournament I wouldn't want to put Romu in because I don't think he should be slotting into a role. Um, But I just felt like he was just a letdown. And, Mm. like, terrible gear aside, you just... He was a man who was there who didn't care. And I've... Like, I've been a fan of Juice before, and I've I've enjoyed him in tournaments previous. But this one, by the end, I was like, just go home, pal. Like, you're no use Mm. to us now. You don't care. I'm not going to invest in you if you're not going to invest in yourself. 
like that says everything with him. Like he's like, for, for, like I'm just looking at my grapple ratings and the lowest, you know, I went lower than two for some Yano matches, but the lowest rating that I've given is two stars for Evil and Juice Robinson. Couldn't tell you to think about that match. I don't remember anything about it. I don't remember anything about Juice Robinson's tournament, if I'm honest. Like he just looks like he's someone on holiday. He never, he never looks. Like, he looks like someone who just doesn't care. And you know, you've got there's wrestlers in the world, like you know, who who have that about them. You know, as soon as they finish their match, they go home and they're not thinking about wrestling. But when they're when they're there on the show, they kill it. Juice Robinson is the is the opposite of that. Juice Robinson is someone who's just he, he doesn't. You can tell he just. just it's not the most important thing going on in his life. And it comes across in his performances as well. And yeah, he's someone who a lot of people have got a lot of investment in and expect things out of. And you're right, sir. It's like, he might as well have not been there this year because I couldn't really tell you any big lowlights about him. And I couldn't really tell you any big highlights about him. Like I say, there were a couple of matches where he flattered to deceive, but his tournament is a blare for me. And, you know, it was a long summer, but a long, well, mm. autumn at this point. But, you know, he is the one who, like, it, if you ask me, like, next year to name all the people who are in the G1 this year, I bet you'd be the name I'd leave out, because that's a little of an impression he made on me this year. I didn't know it was him. I was, um, just came into the room and Alan was watching the G1, and he was on the screen, and I was like, Alan, who's that? And Alan just started smiling at me, and I was like, Alan, who is it? And he just kept smiling at me, and then I kept trying to figure it out. Put it to the test. I was trying to figure it out. I was looking at him. I was like, no, seriously, he's a state. Like, what? Who is this new guy? He shit. What? What's he doing in New Japan? And then I'm just there smiling at me. And then who did I guess it was? Not him. Oh, I can't remember. Billy Kidman. What was that? Billy Kidman. <laughs> he had the uh, the Kidman vest and shorts, like, didn't he? Yeah, You had a funny guess. It was like some U.S. indie guy, I think. That you. Oh, I said, "Is that Effie? Is that who Effie is?" <laughs> <laughs> The Effie for G1 campaign starts here right now. Oh, well, I, I actually, I think, Sarah, was, was it on my podcast with you that I was saying about how Juice was a guy who's so reliant on crowd reaction and how I was really curious as to how he would fare in this. And I'll be honest, like, when he came out in that first show and he was... He seemed to have a fire in his belly and he was excited to, I think, debut a new outfit and he was really going the extra mile to pump up the crowd, the claps. And I think a lot of people did note that, I think you guys even noted it on the, the Grapple show at that point, that on that first show he really did seem to want to kind of engage the crowd in a way um, that maybe other people hadn't been and he got a bit extra light for that match from the crowd with, with Yoshihashi. And maybe it was a case of he had that kind of trick up his sleeve initially. And as you kind of went through the tournament and nine more matches, he didn't really do enough to show anything different. At no point did I feel like he was bad, to be honest. I I was, again, kind of like what Benno said, kind of he was pretty much average and consistent, but I, I think he was consistently like serviceable. I think there was a couple of matches in there. There was a Naito match um, halfway through on, I think it was one of his higher position matches. It might have been a semi-main event and it was on a smaller show. It was in one of the rare shows where they didn't have uh, house lights. So it um, it just kind of stood out in my mind. It's just kind of a bit of a smaller show. And I thought he had a bit of a fire in the belly on that one. But um, I know it's 
it would have been nice to see a few new tricks up the sleeve from as the tournament went on, like the the pulp friction, the big punch. We, we've kind of seen his key spots quite a bit now, so I would have liked to have seen something a bit different as, as it went on, but where my... And I, I know after that first weekend, I did a public apology to Juice because I had talked so much about how I doubted he'd have any enthusiasm whatsoever for competing in front of COVID-era crowds. He just seemed like a guy that was checked out of wrestling. And I apologized to him uh, uh, because I felt I was wrong in that. I think he did show enthusiasm, but I just don't think that enthusiasm was varied enough over the course of the tournament. I think if he stays in Japan now going forward, I think we'll see enough different things. Like, even just watching that last match he was in on the final night when he was in some big 10-man tag, just in the, the baby face celebrations at the end of the match, he still seemed to have a bit of pep in his step, and he was, like, um, slapping Master Watto on the ass and getting him to go up to the top rope and getting him to do the I-want-the-belt motion and all these kind of things. And uh, he just seemed to have a bit of enthusiasm, which... Um, maybe our enthusiasm for Juice was was gone by the end of the tournament, but I think he had more than I would have expected still within him by the end. So I, I don't think he's a lost cause yet. We may still see some good stuff from Juice. And I think if they get Finley over for Tag League, I've always been a fan of that team. I think it's probably the best role for both of them long term. And I think if they have that, they could be... I mean, they've got to defend that tag league. They won it last year. It feels like a million years ago. But that could be something that's a bit of, a bit of interesting stuff for Juice to do in closing the year. Yeah, I think I have to agree with you all. I mean, it's... I think partly that lack of direction. Just it felt like he was over because he, he was just making up the numbers. Exactly. He was making up the numbers. I was just going to say yeah, and and, it, and it's sad because I'm I'm kind of with you. That there's been points I wonder whether or not, and I don't know whether it was down to injury or just even just sort of bad bad timing. But it seems like there were points he was going to get the big pushes, and they've just kind of not happened for whatever reason. And so he's he'll have a big match with Moxley, and then he's kind of out of the picture then for a while. And it's perhaps it's those kind of things that come into it. Um, so, different change of tack at this point. And uh, Sarah Farrell, I want to go to you. Um, you said that you didn't watch much of this. And the phrase you used, and it really stuck with me, was, this is a movie I've seen before. Do you think overall, and this might be the wider issue with New Japan, are the ghetto booking tropes, are they in need of a refresh? Is that the thing that's that you found hard to even try and invest in the G1 in the first place yeah for sure like it's a good movie I've seen before like I know if I sat down to watch it it would be good wrestling the matches would be good and I'd enjoy it but it's just too for me it's too shiny and it's too repetitive it's like do I really want to see Naito versus Tanahashi again I, I don't I have no reason to there's no I don't know the story's not pulling me in uh there's no real characters that I'm overly drawn to. Like, I love Ishii, I love Okada, uh, Yano. I enjoy them, but I just feel like it's the same thing over and over again. Maybe not so much with Yano, because he comes up with new, funny ways of doing things. But, yeah, I don't care for LIJ. I never have. Um, I don't like Naito. Gonna see the split in Sarah and Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> like, people I like, get excited to see in New Japan are like Rapunky 3K. I really like them. And I knew they wouldn't be 
on the shows and yeah, like I like Shingo, but I'm not really too drawn in with what they're doing with him. What? What? Don't say anything bad about Shingo. I like Shingo. You'll, you'll lose Sarah and you'll lose me in the same I night. Did, I like Shingo, but I just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, this reminds me of when you said you didn't really care for Ibushi before. And it was like, <laughs> what do you mean? I like Ibushi. I do, but I, I don't care at the same time. I don't mm. know. It's just all a bit too polished and nice. Like, I like a bit of grittiness to my wrestling. That's why I enjoyed the, the champion kind of. It was all new. It was all fresh. There was characters were more, I don't know. Like, I, I can kind of, like, while I don't really get that to the degree Sarah does with, with New Japan, I think that's all the reason, that's all, for all of us and for many people, the reason why things like NXT and to an even bigger extent WWE have been a struggle for people because of how polished it all is. And if you're, yeah, New Japan really does lack that grittiness. Like, I mean, I watch a lot of, like, random Japanese wrestling from different promotions throughout the years. Like I was watching some um, Shibata in Ricky Pro from 2005 the other day where he was just coming down and sitting in the crowd and jumping the rail and getting in this big brawl with uh, Choshu and his guys. And they're just like these lads sitting there in their suits, just throwing fists and like just this crazy gritty stuff that you just would never see in the, modern new japan that's so protected and so um just it all goes kind of to plan and it's all very like sarah said polished and if you're not massively in bed like i think i'd say sarah kind of not to put words in your in your mouth darling but if uh <laughs> i i would think i would think sarah views new japan probably how i view nxt um because I don't have the level of attachment to NXT that I have to New Japan. And in the same way, Sarah doesn't really have that attachment to New Japan. And that polish that's there, it just kills me. Like, I can't, I try and watch and like, ugh, yeah. I think that's probably the same way you feel. Yeah, I would say that. But also, I don't like matches with 100 near falls. I just... It's true. It's, she hates it. I, I like a match that tells a story and it ends. It just, it must end. I just, the idea of watching a tournament with all these wrestlers have these epic long matches. It's just a tournament with no real storyline. Just not going to do it for me. We, we've been watching matches before where, like, it might be something where I'm like, oh, you got to see this match, Sarah. This is one of my favorite matches of all time. It's a real classic. One of the recent Casey ones. I was like, oh, it's awesome. And then I was like, no, it went she, 15 minutes too long at the end. Yeah, she'll, be, <laughs> she'll be there for, like, 30, she'll invest 30 minutes in it with me watching it glued to the TV thinking this is great this is great and then one near fall too many will happen and be like no nope, you'll be you'll be sitting up on the couch and be like, no nope, they've lost me it's a, that's an unforgivable sin yeah. for you yeah. and there's a lot of that in these matches isn't there the the counter sequences at the end and like you say about the highly polished I always think then you're probably seeing some of the gifts that come up online and you see like a kind of a counter sequence and you probably go I've gone through that before and yeah again Maybe Sarah would love some Sonata, considering how unpolished he is right now and how his finishing <laughs> yeah. sequences are falling apart. He's, maybe. maybe we'll try on some Sonata. How about that? Maybe. Would that mean I have to watch up more Sonata? Because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not signing up for that. <laughs> no, I don't think any of us on this podcast are signing up for that at all. Uh, <laughs> Beno, to go for that with you, and I'm going to actually look at it from the Pickham's angle. Do you find hmm. that when you're like we talk about tropes and kind of what we mean by that, like? I find that I do my G1 Pickums by trope. 
I try and work out the pattern. So it's like, okay, so this wrestler's going to the final, which means they're probably going to lose their first two matches because there's a natural story of them getting the first six. So where are these upsets going to be? And then it used to be in previous years, ah, they're going to be in Osaka on this date and they normally do a bit of an upset at this stage. You know, they need to set up this program that's going on the way to the dome. Do you think there's too much of that going on, Benno? Well, we've discovered why you do so much better in the pickums than I do. Because yeah. uh, I just, I play the odds. Like, I'll look at it and go, okay, right, Jay White's going to, like, slip up on one match, like you say. Or, like, you know, Okada's going to slip up in one match. Or Naito's going to only have a couple of losses. And rather than try and work out what those couple of losses are, I just have Naito win all his matches. Because I'm like, well, I'm going to get eight out of ten. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, okay. like, it, for me, it's predictable in that way. But then I end up mid-table in, uh, in all the G1 pickums and wonder why. Uh, and that's probably why. Because I'm, I'm not taking it up for those uh, educated risks that you do. Where did you finish? Fifth, was it, this year? Uh, uh, you were in the mix. Ninth. Anyway. Yeah. Ninth. There you go. Right up there, though. Like, as far as points go, I think you were, like, joint fifth. But, you've done, you've, you know, you've done better than me over the years. And that's probably why. Um, I mean, this is kind of a conversation we had where I think... I do think it's been... You can look at it and go, okay, these are the big matches on the final days. Therefore, I kind of know where we're going. Um, and I know how Gerdo's mind works. I know, for example, yeah, Sonata... Oh, wow. So not, say this was like... Uh, you know, we, we play fantasy football. If this was like the old days where like it was set and forget, like you'd, you'd pick your team, you'd send them off to the Daily Mirror and leave them all season. That's kind of what the G1 pick-ems are like. You pick them at the start and you leave them all season. If this was weekly... I think we'd all be better at predicting because as soon as you see Sonata win, it's, lose his first three matches, you know what's coming next. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I had the option, of, you know, in game week four of the G1 to uh, to pick Sonata's route, I think I knew where it was going uh, at that point. So I think it becomes predictable in that way. But I do think like this is the year where I do think they turned it on its head a little bit. I feel like that final A block night, did any of us predict that going out the way? You're probably going to say, yes, I did, you know, for you, Jamie, and your pickums, but, you know, I don't think most people did. Uh, and I think that was that was what was so refreshing about that final. If we didn't have that second half of that A-block final show, never mind match quality, how much of a bust would the, you know, the final G1 weekend have been? The fact that we were taking on that emotional roller coaster with the Osprey turn and then, you know... The, the kick fest that came in the semi-main event and then the main event itself with Jay White, you know, slipping on a banana peel at the end, I don't think you could have called them. So I do think, you know, that's, maybe there's an element there of, you know, Ghetto thinking I'm going to mix things up. Like, I even think with this, you know, the whole briefcase thing, you know, how one year the person with the briefcase is going to have to lose. And I honestly, I've got a feeling this is going to be the year. I feel like this is going to be the time where, you know, Ibushi's won another G1. None of that's another thing. Not many of us expected Ibushi to win the G1. You know, he, he wasn't you know popular on people's pick and ballots. If they then turn that on its head uh, and have JY get the briefcase off him, you know, you're mixing her up a little bit. Um, so, you know, while I agree, you know, Ghetto's got his tropes. I'm worried Osprey's going to turn into another, you know, another heel who has endless interference to win his matches. Ghetto does that. He sees something works once, like it did with him and Okada, and then he tries to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Um, but yeah, I, I do think this year he's turned it on its head a little bit. And if anything, I think it's more the choice of the guys that he's gone with that are more my problem that are making me check out. It, as we've talked about, it's the it's the people who are featured, your Sonatas and your Evils of the world, that are more the problem. I think the Ghetto formula can still work um, as long as you know he mixes it up in these little ways that we've had so far. 
and crucially, if the people in the roles are interesting. And I think for me, that's that's the biggest issue more than anything. JP, you'll have to apologize. You'll have to um, uh, forgive me for being rude um, and stealing hosting duties from me here. But uh, the host in me just like something got triggered when uh, when Benno said something there, which uh, planted a question in my head that I'd be curious everyone's thoughts on. Benno mentioned the trope of the briefcase and it never being cashed or it never being stolen from the the guy that has it. He always wins the the fences of the briefcase. The other big trope tied into that is that once the winner of the G1 does make it through to the dome, not since this whole thing started has that G1 winner gone and won the title at the dome. It's never happened. This year, do either... uh, Benno's already said he thinks that the briefcase could get lost, but if you don't think that and you do think Ibushi goes all the way to the Dome, do any of us think that trope will be broken? Is this the year that the G1 winner finally wins in the Dome? I mean, maybe that is the thing to give Ibushi and Okada's had his thing with his gigantic monster title reign. Naito had his thing with being the first double champion. Is Ibushi's thing going to be he's the first guy to win the G1 and then win the title at the Dome? Because they've very clearly protected that. And there's been a bunch of years where we thought that was going to happen. Most probably famously Naito and one of the Okada years. I think after Okada won the 2014 Cebu Dome G1, I think everyone expected him odds on to be Tanashi at the Dome that year, and he didn't. Um... So I would say I think Ibushi will, I think the trope will continue of him keeping the briefcase, but I think they'll break it this year with regard to him actually winning the title. I think that's where he'll go in a different direction this year. What do you guys think? I actually think it depends on who he's going to be against. Let's say he he defeats Jay White for the defense. We have the Naito evil match coming up. Like, I don't know what it is about me. I just think Naito beating Evil and then losing to Ibushi, it just kind of feels like, well, he's just overcome all that shite and then just losing the Dome again. Whereas I feel like if they're going to completely shelve Naito and move him on to something else, I think Ibushi defeating Evil will actually be feel like a nice moment because he will truly become God, defeating Evil and, you know... <laughs> You know, standing tall on on January fifth, finally winning, and I feel like that moment would be better. Whereas I just feel if like they do Naito Ibushi again, which has been a match you've seen played it quite a lot, yeah, it's probably going to be a bigger match in terms of you know name value. But I just feel like the moment will feel a lot sweeter. Match quality would probably be a lot worse, but the moment will feel sweeter if he overcame evil. So I don't know what I'm trying to. I don't know if we should sacrifice a good match for that moment or if we should get a good match and then just have Ibushi win but I think it is finally time that they pull the trigger on Ibushi because you know I felt like after you know the last Tokyo Dome after that weekend he looked like such a loser you know mm-hmm. he lost against was Okada, he lost against Okada and then he lost against Jay White in a nothing match which made him look worse third you know, place playoff the dreaded third fourth place playoff you know, like, that's, no one wants, like, no one cares about that match in the first place, but then to lose, it makes you look even worse. Like, obviously, the stuff with Tanahashi this year has been great, 
But I feel now, like, look, guys, you've given them the G1 win again. Now actually do something with it and don't let him flounder. Because if they let him flounder, then as good as he is, I don't think there's much anyone can do coming back from that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, like I say, I, I'm suspicious of Ibushi winning for that reason. Because let's look at it. Like, it's three years in a row now the G1's been built around Kota Ibushi. Like, you know, we forget the year before last, it was all about him and Kenny. And then last year he wins it, and then this year he wins it, to the surprise of of most of us. And I think that's probably me being, me being pessimistic. I'm just looking at that going, this feels like a red herring. Like, they don't seem that into Ibushi, so why why is this the third year in a row where, like, the G1's been all about Ibushi, and it makes me think he is going to lose the briefcase. But, I mean, to go with Alan's hypothetical, if he does make it as far as Wrestle Kingdom... I feel like yeah, you've got to pull the trigger. I think you've got to, because um, what, why, why come this close with him so many times and not just push him over that hump? I think the, the counter to that is well, unfortunately, the other, another trope has got to go, which is you know Naito, because Naito is someone who he's deserved this big long reign. And I say I don't, I don't like to use the deserve, use where deserved in wrestling, but based on you know. It, 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 this drawing ability is is his uh, placement as like somebody you know the New Japan fans are in love with somebody the hardcore Naito fans have been waiting for him to be the guy. Like imagine he loses to Evil, you know, coming up, uh, you know that that'd be bad. But I think if he loses another big Wrestle Kingdom main event, I think that would be bad too for Naito. So if we get a Naito and Ibushi, uh, I think you know there's damage that, that's done whichever way you go there. Um, so for me, it's going to be a question of which of the tropes you break. Is it Abushi being the nearly man or is it Naito being the top guy, but not quite the top guy? Um, but again, I think the fact that we're discussing this and, you know, while these scenarios aren't exactly, you know, the most exciting scenarios, I wouldn't call it predictable. I would say, you know, it's still wide open exactly what we're going to get going into January. Benno, is, is Naito the homicide of New Japan? <laughs> <laughs> Was the Tokyo Dome his final battle? Final battle. He's <laughs> like, bring a homicide all over again. He's the guy you, you build to the moment of him winning, but his story is not what comes afterwards. And homicide, they built him winning that belt for so long, and that journey was excruciating, and there was ups and downs and trials and tribulations. Sounds familiar when you think it's Naito. But then when he gets it afterwards, he just kind of lost it after, what, two shows, three shows to Morishima, like, just kind of, and then that was pretty much the end of his story in, in Ring of Honor. Mm-hmm. Is this what we're seeing with Naito? Sarah, like, you're, you're, I think, very much in, t- in touch with Naito's character and his arc. Do you think that would be, to the hardcore Naito fans, do you think that would be okay if that was the way it went? Like, He's had the belt for most of this year, but it's obviously been a weird year. Like, if it were just to end with him putting over Ibushi, would that be okay for people who are big fans of him? I I think so, because I think they've finally just gotten what they want, which is Naito getting his due. He's had his big moments now. I think, actually, just thinking back to Jingu Stadium, with him standing tall over evil with the fireworks in the background, they've gotten their moment now that they can look back on, on his career and go, Jingu Stadium, head held high. Naito, a big baseball fan himself, you know, standing tall in a baseball stadium. It was just like that quintessential moment that they can look back on. And I think no matter what happens now, they've had that. And 
you know, like I don't see Naito being the top guy for that long because I don't think he's that sort of guy himself. You know, he he wants to be in there in the mix with other things and I'm sure that he's one of those guys backstage that, you know, as much as we don't see it, like he wants to bring people up. That's I think that's a big part of him. Like that's what LIJ is all about. He wants to bring these people up with him and on this ride. So when the likes of Evil, you know, turns on him, it's a like it's a big deal because Naito invests so much in him, and I think that's the role then that he can shift to. So if if his story ends on January fifth, I think you know as a top guy, people will be pretty content with what he's done, and. Like, I'm not a hardcore Naito fan by any stretch of the imagination. Like, I wasn't crying when he lost to Okada in the Dome that time. Um, but I think, yeah, they, they've they've had their time in the sun. And now whatever he goes from here, I think, yeah, people are, are happy that he's had his moment. Does it feel, because I kind of, just to throw my own two cents into it, I think Ibushi's getting it and it kind of neatly transitions into... Um, having a kind of inception moment where Joe Lanza on flagship had mentioned that is this the end of the Naito and Okada era? And that's just really kind of stuck with me ever since I heard him say that. And it sounds like there's this kind of way of transitioning out of the kind of sort of Naito era, certainly. Whereas we could end up with Okada and an entirely different cast of characters with him as well. Do we feel that's the way that they're going? And that we might be looking at another year of kind of transition to a certain degree and that, you know, Benno, you mentioned about sort of taking risks and stuff. Is this the year that you can take risks with the dome? Given that you've got two domes, limited ticket sales capped at 20,000 that you should be able to shift just because it will have that kind of ties in with the sort of holiday week as well. I mean, there's, there's lots of, you know, it seems like that would be an easy kind of sellout. I don't know. I'll, I'll throw this out there. Um, Sarah, do you think we're looking at the end of the kind of Naito Okada era and we're transitioning into something different? I think it's actually very hard, really, when you think about it, because Okada's actually still quite young when you think about it relative to other people. Like, Okada Ibushi's, what, 38? Okada's 33? You know, like, if you compare the two, Okada still has a lot of life left in him, and I don't buy into the fact that people think he's slowing down at all. I think that was a, a ruse to be honest that, that was a big ruse that he was putting on uh, in the G1 um, like I think there's life left in him and I just think it's a big issue in New Japan that because Okada is so strong at the top of the cards and he's such a dominant champion that when he's not champion they're like oh shite like what do, what do we do with Okada you know we can't have him look weak well, but maybe if he does this stupid new finishing move, that's our way out of it, and he can and he can lose because he has to do this stupid move. I don't know. Um, like I think there's still life left in Okada yet. I I don't think we've seen the end of him at the top of the card because one, he's too good, and and two, I mean, I I actually think it's quite funny when you look at his career. If the only title he ever wins is the IWGP Heavyweight Title, like I don't see him now dropping down to you know team with his buddies and go for the six men six man belts or no I know he did in that tournament but I don't see him dropping down to do lower level stuff just yet maybe when he's in his 40s and he's in the banter era of his career but not now I don't think he's there yet but for me in predicting the future I, I suppose I had a path carved out in my head and going back to just the LIJ story and the evil Naito and 
Hiromu triangle that I, I invested so strongly in, probably to my own detriment, because maybe that's why I was a bit let down with the G1, because I had these bigger expectations that I built up myself and let myself down then at the end. Um, I think they're maybe holding out on some of that stuff because the Dome is only 20,000 people each night. And like you said, they're going to sell them out like hotcakes. Like they're going to be gone in, in a matter of days because people, one, or just want to see wrestling, and two, you know, New Japan can put on any main event, and I'm sure they'd, they'd sell that out because it is the Tokyo Dome, and it is January 4th, and it, it's their big event. So no matter what they put on, it's going to it's gonna work, and it's, and it's going to sell. So I think they're holding on to those bigger stories and delaying the likes of Hiromu moving up because that man and that crowd reaction that he got when he interfered in that B-block match... No, in that that shite that we had to sit through, and when he, you know, jumped the garage rail and interfered, just like these two guys have been here for twenty minutes doing nothing, and this man who was, you knew when he was on commentary that something was up, and of course I switched over to Japanese commentary. I don't know what he's saying, but I switched over, and he hops over and he gets this bigger reaction than anything that had happened in those twenty minutes. They can't waste that. They can't waste him on a you know third capacity crowd so i think that's why they've kind of pulled the reins on that they're like we need to save him for when we need to set out that crowd because that moment can't be wasted yet so you know whoever they throw in the dome it's not going to be as much of a wasted moment than if they would if they went with that story i think yeah i, th- I think for me like the one thing i would say i'm maybe a bit more cautious than everyone else on the on the 20k number i still think that's a lot for two nights uh i know you mentioned there jp it's a holiday week which isn't something i was aware of um but you know 20k on a monday and tuesday you know i was listening to our mate wh talk about it with john and way and he was kind of thinking you know before they set the, the, the upper limit his kind of cap was you know 10 to 12k per night just based on the fact that we are just still coming out of a pandemic people might not want to want to go got to remember this is an indoor show unlike jingu which was outdoor are people going to want to, you know, put themselves in that position? And you've got to get them out to the building. So I would worry about maybe wrestling on the laurels too much with it. But, I mean, as far as the question about whether this is a transition period, I mean, I think we all forget because of uh, COVID and the shutdown, it's not like we were all that hyped in February and March, is it? You know, we weren't, you know, we weren't expecting this to be a, re- you know, a plane sailing, you know, you Japan is still the greatest year. I think all of our interest levels of dipped uh, a bit when it comes to comes to new japan and this was feeling like a bit of a, a rebuilding year uh, so i think we are getting some of that but i think where i agree with sarah is that you know i, I just don't think it's ghetto style to completely do like a you know a full reset or whatever like you know like alan was saying before i, I don't i don't think naito's had his uh you know moments in the ring like homicide with uh, jim jones where we fly high playing i don't think he's at that moment yet i think we've still got two or three more years of Naito main event in Wrestle Kingdom. I think you, know, you only have to look at like Tanahashi Okada when, you know, we all thought that was over. Okay, it's Okada's moment and it wasn't. Let's bleed it for another year. And that's Ghetto's style. He's going to bleed it for another couple of years with Naito and I think with Okada as well um, on top. I think where, where he can freshen things up and where I am encouraged is the movement of Osprey into the position that he's in. I think Osprey and Okada is a dome match. Like, I didn't even consider that as a possibility um, at the start of this year. And now it makes all the sense in the world, like them two, you know, in that big moment and in that big match. 
I think we're going to see more stuff like that. I think we're going to see Jay White continue to be in a prominent position. I think he's going to keep trying, God love him, with Evil and Sonata. So I think he's going to move more fresh people into those spots. But I still think Naito and Okada are going to be the guys, at least for the next two to three years. Maybe Gado's thinking longer term than that. But I think as far as the transition period this year goes, I think it's more about putting more people in the mix rather than a wholesale change. And I think he's going to try and bleed this era that we're in now for a good uh, couple more years. How do we feel about, like, I mean, it looks like you mentioned Osprey. He's not someone that's really come up on the show, particularly because, I don't know, it didn't seem to be that this was anything close to the year he had before. Obviously, there's been so much sort of said about Will Ospreay this this year, and in particular, in relation to so many of of the stories involving um, it regarding to speaking out. But in terms of him, like, is this the year that we feel like 2021 going into it? it this is where they're going to be going sort of full ball with Osprey as a New Japan main eventer. Um, I'll start off with you, Alan, and then and then go on to Sarah Farrell. I'm definitely so okay. When Osprey started showing this new character, so to speak, I'm doing air quotes, even though we're we're not actually recording the video. Um, but uh, when he started showing this new character, um, I was like, oh, this is so cringe. This is so cringe. And I, I'm someone who's generally a pretty big fan of Osprey. And during like the Super Juniors last year, when he was playing, and I don't even know if playing is the right word or if it was authentic, but when he was portraying himself as such a super baby face and he was talking about kind of the mental obstacles he had overcome and um, he was telling the crowd, I was there in Sumo Hall when he was telling the crowd, I'm here, I love you fans, I'm staying here, I've bought a house here in Japan. Um, and the, that crowd in Sumo Hall were popping huge. And I was like, this is such a baby face. He feels like he just slayed the dragon in Shingo. He just felt like on top of the world as a baby face. And this was his character. This was what Will Ospreay would be in New Japan. And I was cool with that. And then seeing the total 180 in his character when he came out and started doing, he did the promo after the Udro match, but then you really started to see it in the other backstage promos following that. And it was a, a Will Ospreay character we've seen before that he's dabbled with before as, as being the, the cocky Will Ospreay. I think probably the most notable version of it would be maybe in progress. He did a run with Paul Robinson where they were kind of heels and we've seen it before. And it always with Osprey, when he does that, I've always kind of felt, Oh, he's just, it's really cringe. He's just guy trying to be heel guy trying to be annoying. And he is succeeding in being annoying, but it's honestly make me want to change the channel annoying. And that was how I felt with a lot of his backstage promos. Sarah, I know, is in the room or walking through the room and would be like, 
the father Ted quote, who let that gobshite on the telly again? There's <laughs> <laughs> sentiments, I think, whenever Will Ospreay would be. It's awful. I mean, I'm glad he turned heel because it was awful. Because he, he meant to be a good guy. It was just so horrible. Every time he was on the TV during the G1 doing promos, it was like, oh, it's awful. It's so awful. I just get him off the TV. Just, That's the thing. I'm, I'm glad he turned heel too because when he did turn heel and we saw what unfolded the last weekend, I was like, okay, this works a bit better for me. Um, there is more of a, mo- a clear motivation behind the character that you can attach to those promos of, I was held down for Okada by Okada. This is why I'm bitter. This is why I've turned on you. And being able to attach that to the character and the obnoxiousness mm. has made the... Like, since he turned and the promos he's done backstage with O'Karn and with B, I've been a lot more into them and receptive to them in a getting heat in a good way kind of thing with me. And I'm I'm interested in him as a heel. I'm interested in the, the aesthetic of the, the group, what it's going to look like, how how much of O'Karn's, O'Kan, I guess we should use to say now, or the great O'Kan, how much of his... Uh, vibe will come into play in the group or how much it will be the Osprey vibe. Um I know when they come out to Osprey's music and Okan leads the way down the 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 aisle and kind of does a weird shuffle, it's like it doesn't really fit. So they might want to rethink the music for one thing. Um I think the I think the next guys that get added to that group are going to be so crucial, not just for the success of the group, but for the success of Will. Because how he plays off them will really set the tone for how good he is in this role, I think. And Phantasmo strikes me as a guy who was this conversation, I think it was myself and WH and uh, uh, one of the guys from Voices were having this conversation on Twitter the other day about the idea of ELP joining versus Robbie Eagles joining. And I think ELP is a fantastic fit character-wise and just feels like he would really bounce off Osprey so well right now. Robbie Eagles, I don't think, fits in terms of characters. I think he's such a great little baby face. And his motivations for turning face were so strong and you were so behind him. He was so easy to root for. And, like, honestly, the, for anyone that, like, skipped out on those Aussie shows or anything last year... The little story arc they put together for Robbie Eagles joining Chaos and leaving Bullet Club was, I thought, one of the best things New Japan did last year. It was absolutely incredible. And the problem is, Eagles, from a story point of view, it makes so much more sense for him to join with Osprey than it would ELP. ELP and Osprey were at loggerheads all last year. The, the two guys couldn't be in a room together without fighting. Um, whereas Eagles followed Will to chaos. Will is his Okada. But I think if they could do something to make that work and have ELP go into the group and have Osprey almost turn on Eagles um, because Eagles showed hesitancy with what Osprey has done here, I think that could work really well. And I think you get in Aussie Open as well if Davis is, uh, is fit and healthy and ready to go again. We know Kyle Fletcher is. Kyle Fletcher is a guy who I have thought for years he is made to be an absolute prick asshole heel 
He's got a face you want to punch. He's just the way his mannerisms about he goes about the ring. Um, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn saying this, but Kyle Fletcher in person, seeing him backstage, just the most, oh my God, this guy is so annoying kind of character. <laughs> like, just energy to burn and just shut up and sit down is kind of the... <laughs> Like they'd be going through like uh, they'd be going through like match layouts and stuff backstage in WXW and planning things, and the guy won't shut up, and the guy won't just oh, just him and Davis just messing the whole time. It's like two school kids, like with absolute Andy and Walter trying to put together this battle royal. And these school <laughs> kids are just acting up, and oh, it's, like you let him tap into that character and just and have the size and badass uh strikes and power that he's shown recently to to back up that character i think he'd be a great fit i think if you put the right pieces around osprey this thing could be the driving force for my interest in new japan going into next year i think it's so crucial I think if they hit a home run with the the pieces of the puzzle like they did with early LIJ, I mean, when Naito was out there on his own, teaming with Juice Robinson and Tamatonga when he initially came back from Mexico and was doing the character, it didn't, like, it was like, oh, all right, he, well, this is a bit weird. But then once you put Evil beside him, once you put Bushi beside him, just those three alone, it was like, oh, here we go, this is... This is the group, and then Sonata slotted in so well, and Romu and Chingo. If they can do something similar with Osprey's group, the Empire, I guess it's called, then that could buy them a lot of a lot of stock for uh, qu- quite a while in terms of their their booking options and their matchup options. There's so much they can do if they get this right. But if they get it wrong and this thing doesn't work out. That's that's going to be tough. Mm. How about yourself, Benno? How do you how in, like in terms of getting that stable right? Yeah, I think the big thing with the stable. I was talking to you know Will Cooling about Osprey on his podcast on the Torch. Uh, Adam's a colleague uh, over there, and we we were talking about both Osprey out of ring, uh, where obviously there's a lot to talk about, and talking about Osprey in ring, where I think there's a lot to talk about as well. And the big thing for me with the stable is going to be. I think it's going to be the types of guys Alan mentioned there that are going to be filling this stable up. And it's about picking those right guys. Like, you know, I think we've all worked ourselves into a shoot with Aussie Open. Let's just hope it happens. Um, you know, uh, I hope they really are on the, the radar in New Japan as much as we all hope they are. Because I completely agree. I think Kyle could be a great second for Osprey and someone who can quietly underneath Osprey develop even further and be someone that I think the, the New Japan crowds are, are really going to get into. But it's going to be those kind of guys because I think we've got to temper expectations with this stable. It, it's not going to be... Osprey is going to be the leader of this stable and Osprey isn't established as a top guy yet. So you can't pepper the stable with people who are more over than Osprey you know, in New Japan. You can't steal like Sonata from LIJ or you can't steal, you know, people of a comparative level or more over than Osprey and put them in there. It's going to have to be lower lower type guys. That does put a lot of pressure on Osprey to deliver uh, and to get himself over to that main event level. 
Um, and it might hamstring it a little, a little bit as well, because it is going to be guys that maybe the New Japan audience aren't familiar with or are slotted, you know, at a certain place on the card. You know, your, your Jeff Cobbs of the world, you know, I'd expect, you know, the rumor was that, you know, he was supposed to be in, in a great O'Khan spot. I imagine he's still going to be in this stable. But we're not talking, you know, we're not talking big names, really, when, when it comes to that. So, yeah, I think it's really going to be, you know, on Osprey to deliver. And two, for this to be something interesting, uh, I think if we end up with, you know, again, another evil or another Jay White and Osprey just fits into that same category, I think we might have a little bit more of a battle on our hands. But if they lean into what Osprey is good at, which is the matches, um, and that stuff stays on the outside of the ring and that stuff stays, at, you know, in the build, I think, you know, there's something there and there's money there. But yeah, it's not a route I expected them to take. It's like Alan said, I think that, I think, obviously, you know, for, for other reasons, there's a lot of bad will towards Osprey throughout the world of wrestling, but I don't think the Japanese fans were thinking that way. I think if you look at when he turned up for opening night, like, the reaction that Osprey got, you know, when he when he came out there and came back to New Japan, you could tell there was a real, genuine connection there, um, and those fans loved him. I think they'll probably love him even more when, you know, eventually he gets this heel run out the way, like Naito did in the past, like Okada did in the past, and then becomes the, you know, the top baby face that we're kind of expecting him to be in New Japan. Um, but I think he is unproven, you know, as, as this as this top level heel. You've seen elements of it in the past, like Alan said. We're even seeing it on the Rev Pro TV at the moment where he's leaning into the, the cockier um, side of things uh, as a character. And it does come across very cosplay Kenny Omega uh, at times. So that's another, you know, trope he's going to have to be wary about falling into. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quietly optimistic with him, but I think there's a, a lot unproven so far. The fact that he hasn't got a big singles match on, on Power Struggle coming up, that's interesting. Um, yeah, there's a lot of potential pitfalls, I would say, with Osprey. But, you know, he's good enough. He's got a connection enough with, with the crowd that I think it's going to work out in the end. But, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not 100% about it. Okay. A couple of last points. Um, and we're talking there about a brand new stable that's coming into the mix. And is this one of the things that... I'll start off um, with yourself, Sarah Flan. Like, in terms of um, these interfactional rivalries, do they need to get a grip on this? Because they seem to be the drivers of every single storyline. And now we've got another one into the mix. And I'm trying to think of when I first started watching sort of New Japan again. I was transfixed by just a kind of Okada-Tanahashi feud in and of itself as a separate being. I didn't think of stables or anything else. It was just a rivalry between two. How do you feel that this is going to fit into that whole mix? Yeah, I think for a lot of the time, I think having the stables there is a really great thing when they're, you know, structuring cards and match structures that, you know, you know that Dookie's going to team with, like, Taichi and Zack, you know, you know that they're going to be together. Okay, that's a group and they're going to be against three random guys from Chaos. But Chaos feel like they don't really exist anymore. I feel like Chaos have now been torn apart. Uh, they've lost Osprey. They've lost one half of Rapongi 3K for at least a year. Um, Okada was, you know, last year going off team with Tanahashi. Sorry, go on. Yoshihashi's keeping them together. He's the glue. He is the glue. He is the glue that's holding them together. The king of trios, mate. He is. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
I think it depends on what you want to get out of New Japan. I feel like a lot of the thing with New Japan is people buy into stables and it's nearly like picking your club. Mm. You know, you pick a stable and that's like the one that you nearly represent. I've never really bought into that. I like who I like. It just so happens to be that my favorite wrestler is in LIJ and I just think the whole dynamic there is something that I've bought into. But that's not to say that I'm not going to go out and buy a Suzuki Goon t-shirt or, or buy Chaos merchandise, you know. Um, I, I think it depends on what they want to get out of it going forward. I mean, like a lot of the stuff maybe on the undercard is fueled by the factions. You know, it's Suzuki Goon, mm. um, like even just the junior tag titles with Desperado Kanemaru and now Hiromu and Bushi. That's really fueled by one Hiromu and Desperado at the top level, their ongoing feud that they've had for years. But also, that's been an ongoing thing with those junior tag titles. It was Bushi and Shingo before years previous. It's always the junior titles in each of these different segments fusing over this. And that's the big thing. It's And then everyone rallies around that junior team when they're in the six-mans, you know, three nights before the big show to try and make sure that they get the upper hand going into their title match. But then when you kind of get into the top card, you don't really see that as much, the factions coming into play. You know, when you're thinking of, say, Okada against Minoru Suzuki, when they were, you know, against each other at Royal Quest last year, you're not thinking, oh, the big chaos Suzuki goon coming to a head. You know, that doesn't play into it. I don't care that they're in these different factions. Um, so I, I think it really does depend on placement of the card. Um, but I I think the factions and, and getting them right and stringent is really important for the undercard and the feuds that play into, in, into that because that's one thing I do think New Japan have done right is you, you have something to sink your teeth into. You know, when you're watching other promotions, the undercards, you might not have that meaty thing to sink into, but they have these little interwoven storylines that they build with these undercard guys and I think the factions play a big role in that. How about, I mean, one of the the things I, I kind of wanted to bring up as well about, as I get my notes up on here, don't worry, I'll edit this bit out. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the things I wanted to, to kind of mention, and it's it it's not even sort of even G1 related in a way, their expansion plans for next year for, for New Japan. I mean, obviously we've, we've had sort of, where does that fit into the mix in terms of their current thinking? Because they're now developing a whole crop of other wrestlers, but they themselves are going to need exposure. And the only places I see Carl Fredericks on at the moment is those UWN primetime shows with the NWA, where him and Fred Ross are appearing on those. So from a business perspective, I mean, where does, where does that fit into the mix? Um, Alan? Um, for As a me, left field topic, sorry. It's, it's really hard to gauge where things are at with the expansion because there's literally nothing that could have thrown it off any more than a worldwide pandemic. <laughs> like when we think of the visa issues that they had 18 months ago or whenever it was, like, Jesus, that's small change compared to what they've had to deal with this year. And they've still kept it going in some shape or form, which I think tells me they're committed to this because 
I mean, they wouldn't have had a better excuse to wash their hands of it all than what they've been dealt with in 2020. So I think what they've built and set up under, I guess, Rocky Romero was really the sort of point man in um, the U.S. I think that tells me that there's still a will there and that there's a will both to have the presence but also to develop the talent somewhere else other than Japan. And that's been successful for them. I think, sadly, it got to the point where I think this year would have been the year they really started to bear fruit off that tree that they've planted, and they haven't been able to do it. They've had to kind of leave Carl Fredericks up on the tree, so to speak. Um, they've had to, to leave Clark Connors and um, uh, Coughlin, Alex Coughlin, had to leave them there when this was a year where they probably could have broke out and been players in Japan. I think it's entirely possible Carl Fredericks would have been in the G1 this year. Mm. I don't think he was going to win the G1 or anything far from it, but I think he would have been in it. I think he would have got some some key spots to showcase himself and start building his stories with other top guys on the roster. They haven't been able to do that, so... I, I think it's taken a, a big blow, but in taking that blow, they've shown a commitment to the cause that they'll probably carry through into next year. And uh, yeah, I'll be. Uh, I think it's worked well in terms of one positive is they've certainly been able to um, tap into some more talent by not being able to bring guys over from Japan. I think they've probably fallen into using some guys they probably wouldn't have used previously. Have been quite successful. Sarah mentioned to me when we were taking a little break earlier about uh, she was wondering about ACH. Was he uh, mm. linked into New Japan right now? I know you're super high on him as someone yeah, who I could... really like him. I really like ACH and I think he might even fit in with Osprey's stable. Like, I want to cheer for ACH if he comes into New Japan, but he's so good at just being a wacky, annoying dude that he could really freshen that whole mm. thing up with. He's been kind That's of working an aggressive veteran yeah. heel on his US indie appearances as well, so... Yeah, I could see that. And he'd be desperately needed for the for the juniors as well, which needs that bit of depth at this point in time. Um, it, just wrapping up on New Japan talk on the whole, really a couple of quick questions. One wacky thing from all of you that you expect to happen, something slightly left field that you think New Japan are capable of doing, sort of perhaps up to the dome, could be an angle or something like that, could be a debut, something in there you just think, I'm not. I've just got an inkling they're going to do something really kind of unusual with this. Maybe they won't. It's Ghetto and his conservatism. Um, Benno, start off with you. I think. I, I mean, I can't see it happening, mate. But imagine if they put two of their biggest belts on Evil of all people. Like if they turned him and put him in with a stable where he doesn't fit, and then did that. That could be a night. Oh wait, no, they've already done that. Mm. Um, <laughs> I don't think you can get more left field than that for me. This year, I don't know. Give uh, give Yano a run with a uh, with a big belt. Maybe you could uh, you could go in that direction. Uh, maybe it's the year of Yujiro. Maybe that's what we should all be uh, expecting. Maybe we're not. We all we all thinking. Oh, he's just in the G1 to make up the numbers. Hey, do another tournament this year. We've got two domes to fill. Maybe there's a lot of Yujiro uh, <laughs> fans out there. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you can get wackier to be honest than than putting evil in Buller Club. Uh, I think that's it really for me. That's the wackiest thing they could possibly do in the. They fucking already did it. Okay, I've got a scenario for you in all of this. Moxley. How do you get around that? 
And do you involve AEW? Let's fantasy book oh, yeah. this one. The US title's still a thing, isn't it? Remember that? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> the briefcase US title thing is a, is a thing at the moment. That's, that's much mm. more of importance. I, I think they are, I think going in this direction with Tanahashi going for this briefcase, I that reeks to me as they have a plan for getting Moxley in for the dome and they're doing Moxley and Tanahashi. Mm-hmm. So just that, you can sometimes sniff things out with New Japan and that's one that I, my ears perked up when uh, I saw Tanahashi looking at that briefcase. And I was like, oh, here we go. I They... They have something in the back of their mind now. Obviously, COVID could strike in ways that they can't um, go forward with their plan, but I think there's definitely a plan there worked out between them, Moxley, AEW, which has Moxley in Tokyo for the Dome shows. Mm-hmm. Possibly to lose the belt, maybe Tanahashi appear on AEW TV? Is that just too silly at that point? Sorry. I think them sending their... The US will obviously have to get... It's heavier yeah. with COVID a lot more than it does. Like, if you look at being in Japan versus the US right now, where would you guys rather be, you know, to avoid yeah. COVID? So I think whatever about them bringing guys over for the US, that's that's easy enough to do. You have them come in, quarantine. Japan has, from what I've read and understand, Japan has really strict, uh, clear guidance in what people need to do and what people have to do if they come into the country. It's easy to follow and you're expected to follow it. And so uh, someone coming over for a company like New Japan, now, the thing is, would the, my only cause for concern is, would AEW be okay with having Moxley gone for that amount of time, to be gone for the two weeks or whatever is needed before the Dome? That could be where it gets a little tricky, because he'd have to miss some TV, unless it just worked out with their taping schedule that they didn't need him or did some pre-tapes. It might be a gesture of goodwill to New Japan and mending the fence to let them do that. So I think that that could possibly already be agreed, but it's a lot easier to go from America to Japan mm. than it is for New Japan to send one of their top guys to America where, let's be honest, walking down the street, you're probably at risk. So I don't think they're going to want Okada or anyone else for that matter um, going over there. I'm curious, is Ren Narita still over there? Did they pull him back? We know they pulled Okan back from the UK. I believe Umino too, and that was going to be my pick for a wacky thing. I think when they bring back Umino, I think they're not wasting any time with him. I think it's going to be Rainmaker light with Umino. Now, I do think he probably would have been left on excursion for a lot longer if it wasn't for COVID. I think they've had to bring him back now and I think they'll give him something big and it could be tied into Moxley. Maybe um, yeah, maybe he comes out and uh, helps Moxley at the end of one of the Dome shows and has a new character based off that and based off their relationship and be be interesting. But I, To me, he's the guy who's the most clear-cut future ace of the young lines that have come true. And he's got the family connection, obviously. It's just, it's too perfect. So, yeah, I, I think we're going to see something huge with him in 2021. Sarah Farrell? Um, do we know who's in the best of the Super Juniors? Well, then I'm going to tell no. Yeah, November 2nd, you're getting them. <laughs> you know who's going to be the best Super Juniors? T-Hawk. Ooh. Why do you say that? 
Where is he? He's nowhere. Look at him. Where is he? No. He's his DDT. <laughs> he is brilliant. He looks like a star and nobody's using him. He's going to New Japan. That's at Super Juniors. He has the look that would just fit in so yep. perfectly there. You could see them. He's got the, the matinee idol good looks. He's got the, the style of wrestling that I think fits into New Japan. Uh, I'm sure Shingo would give him a, would, would give him a, a good reference on the CV. Like, it just seems like a great fit. The only thing that concerns me over whether or not it could happen is if Shima's, these guys signed to some lifetime contract of service to, to follow him. <laughs> follow him to the ends of the earth and whatever he's doing, which uh, you'd never know with Shima. How about you, Sarah, plan? Uh, women's division? No. Um, <laughs> That's left field. Well, B Priestley's there, right? No, mm-hmm. um, no, I'm not going there. Um, there's actually a big match coming up on a DDT show at Ultimate Party, and it's Tatsuya Endo against Daisuke um, Sasaki. So I'm thinking, you know, he's going to lose that match. And he said that he's going to leave DDT. And there's been a lot of rumors this year that he was going to be in best super juniors. It's just a rumor on, on the on the high seas. So I'm thinking he loses at DDT, leaves, and he's going to be in best super juniors. Or he's going to come out and challenge someone at the end of best super juniors. Was was that Endo you said, Sarah? Yeah. Well, Sasaki's going to lose and leave, and he's oh, going to be in best super juniors. Sasaki would be yeah. Yeah. Sasaki was Sasaki in a super juniors before, or was it like a pre-tournament thing? I remember yeah. him. I think he was in one. Um, he has a connection from priors, and you know what's really interesting that gives credence to what you're saying. Who is the man that trained Daisuke Sasaki? That his mentor. Um, father figure in wrestling and apparently from what we hear has quite a bit of influence now in New Japan Dick Togo yeah that would make sense it would make up certainly for the spoiler nonsense that we've sat through so far (laughs) wouldn't it it would at least be some sort of tangible reward for the for the constant garrotting um, I think I think there's going to be like a spot there because I think like if you believe like we should never believe David Starr but if you believe David Starr he was supposed to be in the Super Juniors this year wasn't he so there you go there's a hole there like I, I've been saying I said to Will I thought it could be Michael Oku that could mm. slot into that spot but I'll take Dick to go instead in that spot I want that I yeah. think he should be in it I think if you look at the the interference and the Hiromu Dick to go stuff at the end of that match. I think that would be a great little match, you know, tie mm. into that story even further. Uh, throw him in there, give him a run. Why not? The Devitt Ghetto match of its uh, of the twenty of the twenty twenties is what we're going to get. <laughs> Bizarre little reference. Um, you've mentioned some other companies as well. This has been crazy tournament season in Japan, and obviously it's been a comprised schedule as well. Uh, Sarah, you watched quite a lot of the Champions Carnival, is that right? Yeah, I watched what, all. <laughs> what are your overall thoughts on it? You've you've saw all of that. I tapped out after the Ashino uh, Miyahara match. What what did you? How did you feel about it? You said it was it was fresh to you earlier on. Yeah, I said like, right, we watched the N one and the Champion Carnival. Mm. There, it's compact enough that I can watch all of it because now I watch wrestling. I like to kind of consume all of it. Mm. 
oh, I don't really like dipping in bit here, bit there. So when I follow a company, I'll watch all like every single show. Like I was watching with like Wrestle One or Evolve or OTT or whoever. Like so, I was like, right, we'll watch these tournaments and see how we get on. And N One didn't do it for me. I didn't finish the N One. I just, I just wasn't feeling that. I just, I thought it was just like they were just headbutting each other and stuff. Like it was, it's like, do they know it's fake? It's like, dude, they don't. <laughs> They don't know it's fake. And I just couldn't, I don't know, I just wasn't enjoying it. It was like, these men were just inflicting so much pain on each other in my eyes. And maybe they weren't. I don't know how it works. But it's like, no, 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 no it's not good now. We, we we leave this off. We leave this to Alan. Alan can watch this now. Uh, but M- Many an N1 show was consumed in the, the wee hours of the morning after. <laughs> yeah, so tapped out on the N1 early. And uh, a lot of those know what people hate me already, don't they? Or is that... <laughs> Dude, the fans, remember they got mad at me. I don't, think they, they were, me. I don't think they were uh, uh, Noah fans. <laughs> it was the Big Japan. Oh, Big Japan fans, sorry. <laughs> you were being slow to fall over a beam of TV. They've got it in subtitles <laughs> there at the bottom. Sarah was sat in Cork and Hall and shot off a tweet uh, calling um, <laughs> calling uh, um, uh, Nomura uh, a, some guy or a geek or something like that. Okaba, she she wrote something like Okabayashi just tapped out uh, some geek. Uh, uh, Okabayashi's brilliant or something like that. She fired off that tweet having no idea <laughs> that Takuya Nomura is like, like the, the most K-pop the... fans after me. <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, there was a series of uh, harsh tweets aimed in her direction after that. Like my my poor supportive wife here coming giving me this incredible holiday, bringing me to Cork and Hall, sitting and enjoying the shows and and firing off a tweet and then getting slated as a result. Yeah. Jesus, it's like I, I insulted one of the the K-pop idols it was... or someone's son maybe yeah. Yeah. playing was... with fire there ah, look they were probably from Cork and stuff with their cheap pictures <laughs> and Japanese names on Twitter just we <laughs> <laughs> you... anyway yeah what did you think of the overall standard of the Champions Carnival in that yeah place? I really liked it I like I like Jiro, I just I love the buzz of him coming out every show with his jacket and his big, you know, hello and knowing that it pissed off Lanza as well kinda helped. So I was like, Lanza hates this guy, he's awesome. Um then obviously Kumarashi, I was a big fan of him in Wrestle One. Mm. So he was my boy going into the tournament. That's why I decided to watch it. I was like, gonna watch Kuma, he's gonna do great things. He didn't do great things. He had three sub 10-minute matches in a row, which he lost. <laughs> and he did finally win the last one. But I just, I love his vibe and just his character. And, like, I like I like Ashino, too, um, from Infants. But, like, he's the main guy or whatever. Uh, but, no, Kuma's the, the lad. What but, did you think of Miyahara? Because Miyahara yeah. is obviously a big hyped guy in all Japan that you had never seen before. And I know when he, when he came out for the first show we watched, I was like, all right, this is, mm. this is the guy... Everyone loves what they did and get him. Yeah, you can kind of see why because like during like obviously COVID era and the clapping shows and so on mm. that he came up. I don't know if it was new or to me it was new anyway, but his own clap, which was just a beat of a clap, and he had all the crowd doing it. Start like started tournaments, they're just doing it really lightly, but as tournament went on for all his matches, they were doing his clap. I thought it was like, kind of really kind of a, a cool thing where they couldn't do chants or you know shouting or anything. So I thought that was kind of like a, yeah. A, yeah it was it was it got me into him and his character and you could see how he could like work the crowd and get him behind Mm. him even when they can't chant or anything and he just his matches were all pretty good um 
I liked Jake Lee as well, the, the Irish boy. Um, yeah, to Dropkick Murphys. That change in music, and I loved the heavy. He had a crack. I remember making Benno. I, th- I think I tried to convince you, but it's like we barely mentioned all Japan. We can't have it as a theme for the night. Uh, <laughs> and, and he's changed it to the Dropkick Murphys, and it's just like, oh no, no, no. Now we've no. got our outro. Oh, I'm not putting that on there. I'm putting on the heavy. My show. Fuck off. <laughs> Sorry, pull rank on that one. But um, yeah, how did you feel, Jake Lee stood up and? in this tournament because I have to say he, I didn't see enough of him in a way he, he didn't. yeah he was okay like, he wasn't one of my favourites but I feel like mm. I enjoyed him a lot um, who I really like in all Japan is um, what's an Akira Francesco the mm. the great the nice Italian boy yes. so like his matches on the undercard and so on like yeah like I was enjoying them not so much Yoshitatsu that was the one kind of Dud in the tournament for me. Would have like swapped Akira in for him, or maybe even Irie. Uh, Irie was knocking about as well, and he wasn't in the tournament, so that mm. was kind of. You'll, you'll get Irie and Tagli teaming with Zeus. Yeah, yeah. Zeus. Yeah, oh, Zeus yeah. was brand new to me. He's a hard man, isn't he? <laughs> he sweats like nobody else as well. And I have to say, I mean, I think of all the tournament finals, I think the All Japan one was possibly the best one out yeah. of all of them. I think Zeus Miyahara was. Certainly much better than the G1, depending on your point of view, up there with the N1 final as well. But I, I personally enjoy I mean, what did you make of the final in the end, everyone? I loved it. I thought it was incredible. Me and Sarah uh, dipped out of work for an hour and a half yeah. <laughs> uh, one what, Monday morning uh, um, and made sure I had no meetings in the calendar, no phone Who calls. Who says lockdown has no benefit? Oh, I know. Squeeze all this in. Yeah, I uh, I made sure I had that time free. Sarah did the same, and we uh, we 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 brought the laptop up and we 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 uh, sat settled in for some champion carnival final, and it was uh, it was awesome. I thought it was a brilliant match. They they had cork and rocking, even though they couldn't make noise other than the clapping. And but it was it was one of the best atmospheres of COVID era wrestling in Japan. And I think I don't know if am I putting words in your mouth to say this was a a rare match with a lot of near falls that even you were able to uh, appreciate and stick with. Yeah, I could stomach it. Like five minutes less, maybe. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. No, I, I was, I really enjoyed it. And uh, it made me just see Zeus as one of the top guys. I was saying to Adam, like, mm-hmm. I know there hasn't been too much wrestling this year, but like surely Zeus would have to be in people's wrestler of the year list this year after the tournament. He seemed to be one of the, like, I think... On the other stuff I saw on the other side of it, I, what disappoints it is that he lost the match with Sawama. And th- th- that's, yeah. and, and I think perhaps this is why I'm probably slightly down on all Japan. I think their bookings all over the place at yeah. the minute. And you mentioned Enfant Terrible. It's like, here's a fresh stable coming in from Wrestle One. You've picked up a couple of the big, big, you know, the better people from Wrestle One mm-hmm. and you've done bugger all with them. And you've gone with Sawama in a rain as the kind of what feels to me as I'm sort of going on an all Japan rant now where he's being set up as something that perhaps he isn't. Don't get me wrong. I love violent giants and him and Ishikawa, but I don't think Ishikawa is actually doing him any favors by, by him being pushed into this kind of sort of Uber legend status with this kind of run. It doesn't feel like it's sitting with me. I, 
I could be completely out on a reservation on that. But I think their, becky, their booking has gone somewhat amiss. And I think it was better when they were focusing on the chase for the who was the next set of guys who were going to be on Miyahara's level. And you were going to have Naya Nomura before, before the injury there. And you had Jake Lee um, getting very close there as well. I think he has lost a lot of momentum. I yeah. think Lee, Lee, with that title match he had with Miyahara in January when Corgan was packed, you had all the foreigners in there, um, Tokyo Dome week, it was such a special atmosphere. Him and, him and uh, Miyahara, my mate, Doon, was there in Japan for the first time and he went to that old Japan show and he was raving to me about that. He was like this, and he's become an all-Japan fan. He watched all the Champion Carnival as well, and he was so invested in Jake Lee coming off that. He thought he was just a, a superstar, but um, yet hasn't panned out. I wonder how much they're just um, holding water until Nomura, um, Naoya Nomura, uh, comes back from his injury. But mm. yeah, I don't know. It seems like it wouldn't have it wouldn't have hurt at all, I think, to give Zeus the belt coming off that champion carnival final. I mean, he was he was hot after that. Yeah, like yeah. they kinda of kept him on the back burner, but as Sarah said, like he came off such a star in that champion carnival final. They were it, it, there wouldn't have been anything wrong with putting the belt on him. And whoever is gonna beat Suama for the belt, if they have plans for someone to beat Tuama, that person probably would have gained as much from beating Zeus whenever it happens as well. So I don't know. I think it would have been for like the right now in the present, in the present, it would have been a better thing to move the belt onto Zeus. Even if that wasn't the plan, I'd have caught an audible because mm-hmm. what well, seeing that champion carnival final. And it sucks because the match, the, the title match happened, what, two weeks after the champion yeah. carnival final? He had like two weeks of, of that feeling that way and then it's just been thrown away already but maybe they'll rehab some stuff with the tag league unlike new japan all japan's december tag league is actually usually really well done really interesting and has some some killer matches so it's always been their big tournament isn't it always much bigger than the champions carnival is the real world tag league in some ways, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot more history to it than New Japan's uh, World Tag Team League. So I'm hoping they'll do some stuff. They've got some interesting teams in there. They've got the ECW team who actually came out to ECW Music on the last Cork and show, Tajiri and Nosato Tanaka, um, with their Singapore canes and their chairs. I can see Benno's interest speaking now at this point. He's like, Hello. <laughs> you got me in now. Yeah. <laughs> So you, you'll have assigned to be the homework, JP, of watching All Japan. I normally ignore, I normally ignore, yeah. But I did tune in for this, and I, and I feel like for that, I need to need to go back and uh, need, need to maybe turn up my uh, AJPW quota from like two matches a year to maybe I'll move up to three or four, and me and you can chat in the last five minutes of spotlight because yeah, anything anything in a retro ECW involving Sajiri, I'm into. Um, I feel bad because I'm one of the people who kind of I'll float in when you know obviously there's a highly recommended match or or like when I did match of the month with Jamesy in January where January where it was like I don't want to seem stupid here. So I'm gonna eat my greens and do my homework and watch these rando <laughs> matches that Jamesy's put on the on the, yeah. on the list there, so I at least know what he's talking about. Um, Headmasters, yeah, there, so... mate. You've got to be turned up. You're in detention. It's serious. But I was on the month after you, and my God, I've never worked as hard for a podcast <laughs> in my life. That's it. Yeah, you don't want to uh, get outshined uh, by the biggest star there uh, on those podcasts. <laughs> but, yeah, I felt bad because I, I gave this. Four stars on Gravel, and I, when I punched my rating, then it dropped. It dropped the average from four and a half to four point four nine. 
So, you know, if someone wants to go mm. in there who's a big uh, old Japan fan who is uh, more invested than me and giving it a five. Yeah. yeah, me too. There you go. Bump <laughs> yeah. that average up everyone because I felt bad when I did that because it was just purely for me. It's the investment side of things because mm. it's, you know, it's not a promotion I'm hugely invested in. But like hearing you guys talk about Zeus, like I'm shocked by that because for me, that was the biggest takeaway of the match. Like the match was Kento Miyahara selling his fucking arse off for Zeus. Like those, when he was hitting those chops and kind of covering up uh, from Zeus on the floor and putting him over as this 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 huge monster, he came across like a massive star for me. Like I I had no issue with the length either. It went like more than thirty minutes, and you know it felt half as long as the G1 final. And part of that was you know how invested they got they got me in you know Zeus as this as this big deal. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like it feels like as, as you will always say with them JP one kind of one step forward, two steps back with them, because, yeah, he felt like the biggest star in the world coming out of this match. Did you manage to see any of the um, Champions Carnival, Sarah? Was it just the end one that you, you kind of dotted in and out of? So I had plans of grandeur to watch all of these tournaments, and then I just procrastinated so much. I skipped to the end of Champions Carnival and just watched finals, mm. and I, I dotted in around the end one. Uh, Champions Carnival... I actually, when I put the match on, I just loved the girls in the crowd cheering for Zeus, like a little yeah. Zeus fan club. I was like, I want to be friends with them. That looks like fun. Because obviously, like, Kenta Miyahara is that big star of All Japan. Like, if you don't watch All Japan, you still know who Kenta Miyahara is. Because if you hear of any match that's in any way decent from that promotion, it's usually him against someone. And, like, that, that Jake Lee match back in January, I loved. Like, I... I wasn't there, but I came out of the match being like, that was brilliant, and Jake Lee's the future. And I was actually kind of hoping that Jake Lee would, would have a really good Champions Carnival, even though I didn't watch it. But <laughs> I was still hoping that he would. Um, but I loved that. I loved that match. And I actually, I think it edges the N1 finals for me mm. as the top tournament match. And, and that's with little to no investment in both guys, purely because they they made me invested in the match. Um, and I think that the shock factor as well, I didn't know who was going to win. I actually just thought they were just going to be like, all right, Kanto, here you go, another win for you, boy. Um, and they didn't. So I think for that reason alone, I loved it. But there's something about the N1 this year. I don't know what's happened to me in 2020. If you told me back in 2009 that I'd become like a Go Shiyazaki super fan, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about because I've never shown any sort of interest in Go Shiyazaki. But something's happened to me in 2020 since he's won the belt. I'm like the biggest Go Shiyazaki fan in the world. I don't know what's happened. So I just loved watching him in the N1. It is broken down body, failing, his arms falling off. I don't know if it was like because during the pandemic I felt like that the way his body was falling apart. Um, I just loved that story, that story with him and Nakajima right now, and now the build to that title match. Um, you know, former tag team partners, Nakajima turning on him and joining forces with that uh, with Congo. I just think there's some really good stuff happening in Noah that's going on, like going under the radar to be honest. Mm. Um, and I thought the final. Um, with like, that final was still really good as well. I, I didn't like it as much as the Champions Carnival. I just think it didn't have that edge to it that I wanted, but like still better than the G1 final. Um, you know, mm-hmm. got got over four stars for me. So, 
going to say, me and, me and Alan were ahead of the curve on Goshiyazaki, weren't we? We saw the star he was going to be in 2006 for England, but he came over to Liverpool. He was always going to make it, wasn't he? Him and Sua coming over and uh, teaching the English wrestlers about necessary training. <laughs> <laughs> many, many skinny boys. Many, many skinny boys. Yeah, chest press, bicep curl, necessary training. <laughs> but... Uh, was he running, doing the rounds in Watford as well, Sarah? When 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 Noah were coming over, I think he did. Yeah, he might have. You see, when I was going to all these shows, and I pretty much went to all the main Waterford shows because, like, I was living there. Um, God's country, in the city, like living in the city. I'm not from the city, but I was living in the city for the, for those few years, and um, I just wasn't into indie wrestling. I didn't like indie wrestling. Like, I, I went to the shows and I enjoyed them, but I didn't like watch the wrestling channel or. I just wasn't arsed with any Japanese wrestling or I just wouldn't have known them. I was like, oh yeah, the lads are over. Are they great? <laughs> you know? It's like I was there to see Drew McIntyre and Bingo Balance. <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, oh, Johnny Storm. I like Johnny Storm. He was he used to come over a lot. Red Vinny, Vic Viper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jo- the jo- Johnny Storm for best of the super juniors. There we go. Get him in. But I mean did uh, uh, Alan? Did you see the N? Uh, did you see the N one final though between you though? Yeah, I watched pretty much all the N one. Um, I I'll refrain from talking too much about it because if I do, I'll end up just going on another rant. Uh, this time about Mizaki Mochizuki and how mm-hmm. he's one of, if not the greatest wrestlers of all time. So, um, I think I've done enough rants on this show, and uh, Sarah's afraid I'll wake the neighbours up. We've had a, no- a lovely new young family move in beside us, and they're probably not used to uh, uh, absolutely just ranting about Mizaki Mochizuki at full volume at one in the morning. <laughs> Spare the little children that. Um, and uh, I'll just say, yeah, I enjoyed the N1 quite a bit. I thought they told some real good stories with it. Goes body falling apart like Sarah alluded to was just tremendous stuff and he was in there with the exact right guys basically trying to rip his limbs off everyone from Kazushi Sakuraba to Manabu Soya to Mochizuki it was great I I think yeah they they did a a real good job Nosawa's booking has been um, started the year really good they made a bunch of really good booking decisions again that week in January um, where things were really hot in Japan um for a bunch of promotions, they, they put a lot of great stuff in place. It feels like during the pandemic, they were just all over the place from a booking perspective. And I, I, I wasn't watching really any Noah during that period, but everything I was hearing, I was like, oh God, this doesn't sound good at all. Um, then it seems like in the lead up, maybe about a month out from this N1, he really started getting stuff in place. And then all these stories played out really well during the tournament. And, yeah, they've got a lot of interesting stuff going on, and geez, they have a lot of talent both on the heavyweight side and the and the junior side. Mm. And some for the first time in many years, in Noah it was one of the biggest reasons the uh, Noah fell from the lofty heights it was at in the mid two thousands was they didn't have new young stars coming through. They went a ridiculous number of years without anyone coming out of their dojo something like eight years or something like that. Mm. And now they've got some young talents. If, if if I can give one name for people to remember, and it's an easy one to remember, it's a it's a familiar surname, Kenya Okada. That kid is money. He is going to be one of the best workers. Like 
I think the charisma is there. I think the character will be there. I can see a little bit of an edge to him. But the actual work is a lock. Like, this guy is so good. And uh, he's dynamic and he's hard-hitting and he's he's got the, the basics down. He's got the skills. He's I see so much in him. I think he's going to be a, a big star and he's, he's clearly going to be a heavyweight as well. They've got some good guys on the junior side as well. Um, even some of their guys who are more established, who've been there for a few years, like a Kiyomiya and a Kitamiya, these are guys who still have a lot of uh, room left in their growth and have big ceilings. So, yeah, I am. I'm pretty bullish on Noah, but anytime you get too bullish on Noah, it can come back and bite you. So I'm, I'm cautious. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm with you on that one. I was just glad that they got to what is the right the. The former Axis partners and having Nakajima, Cho, uh, Go Shiyazaki, that seemed to be the common sense direction. And then you have you have Kiyomiya after that as well, and the entire journey that he's going on through there. But yeah, another Akada, I'll happily take that at this stage. Which brings us to the end of this podcast. We've we've gone an epic length. We've gone deep, deep, deep dive into New Japan. We've smashed through Ghetto's complex wall chart full of. Uh, post-it notes and weird lines that out of that meme from it's always sunny in philadelphia which i've never seen an episode of my life so not really the person to talk about it oh well but, i could see you in your cup of tea jp i i should do but, uh, how, do, how do i get time you know the, the uh, early years the early years the the more recent years might be just a bit too uh, a, a bit too much but the, the early years a bit more subtle a bit a bit simpler Oh, okay. okay, I will okay. get to that first season without Danny DeVito, and then he comes in season two. Goal from there on out. You'll love it, JJ. Okay, I will go along from that. So I'll be plugging uh, that first series of I'm Sully. I'm. It's always Sully in Philadelphia. Kind of in talks one in the morning. Gone to high hell. But thank you all for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure and delight, and I've loved every minute of it. Um, let's get some of the plugs in though. Sarah Flan, let's start with you. What have you got to plug? What can you sell the good people? I don't have anything anymore. The pandemic's ruined An everything. eBay store? <laughs> God, the pandemic's ruined everything. Um, yeah, I suppose Journey Through Grill Island, if you want to hear about classic PWG, we're still stuck in 2004, thanks to the lovely pandemic. Um we don't know when we're going to get a show out again because currently we can't even see each other in person. And um, we only record in person because, um, yeah, we don't, I don't know what it is. We just gel better when we're in the same yeah. room and we can throw shots at each other. Um, Literal shots or? Well. That'd be draps and claps where that happens. <laughs> after recording, <laughs> last time when we, when uh, we recorded, a few of us ended up staying up till like 7am watching wrestling, um, which is great fun, but we can't do that now. Um but yeah, Journey Through Girl Island, Sarah, I don't know if we'll ever record the two Sarahs again because yes. Brit Rest is dead. So yeah. what do we talk about? Brit Rest is dead. <laughs> I don't yeah. know which arsehole came up with that phrase. <laughs> Not just Brit Rest. You're a rat. I'm Brit yeah. Rest. Fucking yeah. dead, everyone. Grow up. <laughs> it is dead, isn't it? Fucking dead. Grow up. <laughs> rest, of, rest of peace. Um, we hardly knew you. Um, yeah, and then I suppose... We, did, we, did. <laughs> we had a good run um, and then yeah I suppose follow me on Twitter at Sarah Flan um, 
yeah, and Hiromu to win Best Super Juniors. <laughs> That's about it. Sarah Farrell, where can we find you? And when, uh, confirm on a date now when when the two Sarahs coming back. Come on. <laughs> like, oh, it's, you know, there is no, the wrestling's dead, JB. Dead. It is. Uh, it is. It's That's dead. why we're all pretending we're living in Japan for the sake yeah. of this episode, really, isn't it? I'm much happy pretending I'm over there where there's crowds and everything. It's a lot more fun. For my spicy tweets, you can get me at two Sarahs. Um, For my not-so-spicy tweets, you can get me at Sarah4L. My my wife just we're telepathically in sync here because she's she's Cuban with a brilliant uh, transition that she didn't even know there. Speaking of spicy, I have a plug for... Despite some uh, dodgy pictures on my Twitter timeline earlier, the Indian restaurant around the corner that I got in today, absolutely fantastic. Got to give a plug to them. Was it a Great. spud in your rice, though? I, apparently, it's something called ghee, JV. <laughs> it's, it's some butter substance. Uh. Fairflan is laughing hard. <laughs> so, this was confirmed by... This was confirmed by uh, uh, some shoot Indians who, uh, <laughs> who, <laughs> who told me. Uh, I believe it was uh, Akil who uh, who jumped in shoot and said, uh, "I don't even know if Akil is from India, but he did say a uh, brown guy here, and then confirmed to me that uh, it was uh, this thing called ghee and." Um, yeah, I yeah. Uh, Mystery rice surprise, yum yum yum. <laughs> Mystery rice surprise. I didn't eat the ghee. I keep <laughs> <laughs> to the side, and <laughs> I I just stuck with the the rest of the dish, and it was absolutely banging. And I got a wrap from them as well, which I had for lunch, and uh, uh, the the wrap was just fantastic, like serious value for money. This thing was huge. <laughs> And it came with chips as well. They're like, look, don't get me wrong, they weren't the best chips I've ever had in my life. But like, I basically, did, I basically got them for free because like the 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 cost was like seven euro, and the wrap was worth probably I'd say at least twelve euro. The quality of it, absolutely fantastic. So big plug for them. I forget their name, though, so I can't <laughs> actually give a proper plug. But uh, South Circular Road Indian Restaurant. <laughs> look them up. I'll have to give this place a go. You've picked this up now. You told me. You sent me the message. You said, what's it called? It's, no, you didn't. They were, they were great anyway. But uh, in serious plugs, Alan, I won't waste too much time now. I've already done that. So Alan4L on Twitter, PWTorch VIP. Check out the latest show. I did the TNA show with Eddie and Dan. It was awesome fun. Uh, Conan retweeted it. So you know it must be good uh, if the K-Dog approves. Um, yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's, that's was me. he sliding in the DMs though, Alan? That's 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 normal. Did you listen to my podcast. Did you get one of them? Everyone gets that. <laughs> K dog, I'm sure spends uh, quite a bit of his time sliding in people's DMs. But uh, sure, look, that's uh, that's how he operates. Love them in WCW. Yeah, yeah. It's that it's that four live crew talk. <laughs> getting getting back into that. Oh. oh it's- Shocked by that turn at turning point at uh, 2005. Wow. The James. <laughs> oh, brilliant stuff. Benno, what have you got to plug? You're on loads of things at the minute, aren't you? 
Yeah, I'm doing the world tour at the moment, but all in all, must up spotlight on Mondays on this very network. BWE we're recording in two weeks. I am looking forward to doing Bushby and Thompson though. We're uh, I'm going on to guest as they do, and I don't love this Manhattan Mayhem two, the 2007 show, and I'm going to answer the age old question of where uh, which Manhattan Mayhem is better out of ROH, uh, the one with the uh, the Brian Morishino match in 07 or that killer card in 2005. We're reviewing the 2007 version. I've always said the uh, the 2005 one was better, but we're going to find out. So, yeah, looking forward to do that over on uh, on Post Wrestling coming up. Right. And, yeah, all the normal stuff. You can follow me on Twitter, at Benson Richie. Excellent stuff. Thank you all so much for your time. It's been an absolute delight. The four L's, Sarah Flan, Benno, I'm JP. Am I a four L now? No, you're not. You're just Benno. Well, actually, (laughs) to me, you'll always be Richard. Thanks, mate. Thanks ever so much, guys. Bye. 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 If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.